I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. We're going to do a little bit of an intro piece here uh, with Carlos. We did a segment we're going to play shortly that deals with the... Um, uh, the survey we did a few months back. So having said that, um, we, went, we wanted to do this intro piece to kind of explain what you're about to hear. So Carlos, do you want to uh, delve into that? Sure. Uh, hello, guys. Um, so <clears throat> there was a survey that was done among enthusiasts, you know, hunters and hikers. And uh, we took a look at their responses. And, and these are people that spend um, a fair amount of time out in the, in the, in the outdoors, shall we say. And uh, it kind of uh, captures their experiences with sightings and the number of sightings that they've had. Yeah. And um, now I was when we talked earlier earlier carlos it was um i was sort of making an assumption a, a much broader assumption that this would be hey listen what's what's the probability what are the odds that you the average person are going to see one of these and then you pointed out that well it really applies to this very um defined group this this group that only the respondents and we don't have quite enough data to you know we don't know where they're from and that sort of thing however you still found some very interesting trends and can you kind of go into that a little bit you know uh within the group itself yeah yeah absolutely so um i, I like to frame this kind of um discussion a, a little bit um, you know, because uh, I'm an outdoor enthusiast myself, you know, I, I love hiking and uh, I love hunting and in, my particular hunt <laughs> is a hog. So I do spend uh, time out there looking. But anyways, yeah, so we were looking at a survey of folks who spend um, quite a bit of time out there. And so what that means is that we've asked them a line of questions that sort of separates you know their experiences based on hours and uh, and the number of years that they um, that they've been doing this and also whether they've had a sighting and if they've had a sighting have they had multiple sightings and so my first um, my first couple of passes at this was to try to separate um, their the, the number of hours and try to understand, what this particular group um, has in terms of a range of um, time that they spend outdoors. And then also look at the number of years for those people that spend a number of time outdoors 
you know, if we can kind of chart their experiences to see the trends. And so what I did find out is that there, there, there was, there was a line um, of trending, trending, forgive me, <laughs> trending when I, when I looked at, you know, I looked at the data this way. So um, my first pass was to try to see, all right, how many people have actually encountered um, something out in the, you know, while they're doing out there. And, and I think that this, in this particular group, about a third of them have actually had an experience. And, and, and I wanted to try to better understand why. And um, I looked at the number of hours that they spend outdoors first. And when I started uh, pivoting and parsing the data, I saw that the group of folks that spend up to three months of um, hiking, um, actually, that's where the first trend. Now, I want to qualify that, right? Because this is in terms of hours. So the, the first group really is between 100 to 500 hours um, a, a year outdoors. Now, it, you know, the way I look at this is that if I'm spending 500 hours a year outdoors, that's about a quarter of my, my working hours, right? Because, you know, you know, years where the working is about 2,080 hours. So this is like three months worth of work outdoors. Anyways, so as I looked at this, I saw a trend between 100 and 500 hours where the number of hours as it was increasing, the number of people who had sightings was increasing. And there's a consistency there because as as we as we you know draw trend lines across the data, there is uh, a few that under 100 hours they they've had you know a sighting, but as you get into the group of people that have spent 100, 200, and 300 hours, there is a gradual ascension of the number of times that they've seen them. Now it kind of it, it does kind of like end at about you know, six or 700 hours, that's where it kind of goes up and down. You see that continuous line. But the majority of sightings are increasing between 100 and 500 hours, which to me is consistent because if you're spending more hours out in the wild, you're going to have more of an opportunity, more chances to see that. And that's exactly what this suggests. It is, you know, it is pretty evident in that sense. So that was the, the first thing. And the second thing I said, okay, well, if if these folks are seeing something, what are the number of times that they've seen them? And I was, you know, when you're looking at data, you never know what you're going to see, right? Because, you know, you start uh, categorizing and pivoting. But I saw the exact same trend. I saw that in this with this group of folks in that same range between 100 and 500 hours, you you see it, it, the, uh, another ascension pattern where there are people who spend that amount of time who've actually seen it more than once. Now, the, the numbers vary some, right? Which to me makes sense because you, you're not guaranteed a sighting or whatnot. But between 100 hours and 500 hours, uh, together as a group, there were over 20 sightings with this group. Um, you know, in terms of peaks like that, that was like the, the high number of uh, sightings where people have seen him, you know, more than once. 
you know, and from we're looking from an aggregation point of view. So it's like, okay, so in this group for those hours, how many times was this creature seen? And you'd see that pattern going up, which again, to me, looking at this group suggests that you're spending more time, you're in areas where you're seeing you're seeing them, and if you know you keep going back to the same area, assuming that they're back in the same area, uh, you're going to see them more than once, and that's what the data shows in in, in that sense. Which Carlos, I, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna jump in real quick. Yeah, you and I have gone over this quite a bit, and it's absolutely fascinating. And down the road, we've talked about another project where we would significantly um, fine tune this process to get even more information. So yeah. this is something that we want to, this is going to be kind of an ongoing trend. Ultimately, we want to ask the question of in your lifetime and your meaning the audience, the broader audience out there. Because uh, there's probably a lot of people out there who are thinking, I will never see one of these things. And I want to try to get to the point where we can answer the question, well, is there is that really true? Or is there a chance that you may see one? And already this is a step in that direction, actually a, a big step. Uh, you know, the more yeah. time you spend in the woods, for some strange reason, it seems to increase the probability that you're going to see one of these things. Well, it makes to total sense, you know, and, and I think that, yeah, I'm very interested in in expanding this um, and fine tuning, uh, as you know, collecting data and trying to analyze that. But at least from from a group of people that spend time out there, you know, hikers and hunters. Yeah, it makes sense. But we can certainly look at, you know, more, um, I guess, a wider array of data to collect that, to try to get to that number. And, and we can do that, absolutely. One question I have is you, you mentioned two things. Uh, and I just want to have a kind of a brief clarification for some of our audience who may not know what those definitions are. <clears throat> you took a look at the data set and you talked about pivoting and parsing. And could you just give a real brief kind of a summary of what those terms mean and how they apply? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'm sorry for using uh, the 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 data and analytics terms, <laughs> but yeah. No, but no, no, that's, that's important. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's, no, no worries. Um, so basically, um, when you collect uh, data sets, um, you know, you're you're usually looking at it like in rows and columns, and so you're asking questions among different you know different people, you know. You know, um, there's you know question one, question two, question three, but you're not looking at it um, from a question perspective. You're looking at it from a data um, table perspective. So you're seeing it all laid out. You know, all the different uh, columns and rows. Usually, the rows are the people's, uh, the different people, and the columns represent their answers for each person. So what we what we attempt to do is bend the data um, analytics based on the question and the answers so that we can aggregate and then see how many of the answer choices were um, made. So for example, if you've got answer one, answer two, answer three, we, we pivot the data, we bend the data so that we can see the 
the the groupings based on the answers and then you can go back and say okay so we have you know uh x number of people that answered the question this way versus the way that they answered this way and then we can take the number of people who answered those questions get um you know the number averages the low counts the high counts and then put those on a graph and then plot them so that and then with other elements of the of the of the questions like the location over time then we can say okay truly we can hone down the trends so pivoting means bending the the data uh, per question so that we can analyze the answer answer trends that way does, how do we answer? bend the data? How, what do oh. we do? You literally flip it up on its side. What, how does that work? Yeah, literally. Uh, so you get um, you get the data into an application that allows you to do analytics. And in this case, we can look at like spreadsheets and and databases. And once it's in there, you write um, the questions out and try to form. Okay, these are the these are the bits of information that I need to you know pivot on. So you perform a function that basically takes all the answers and then groups them by the answer. So yes would be a category, no would be a category, the number of times you know would be a, a count. And you use a function and say like for example in a spreadsheet that is really called a pivot table. So you take all the data, you look at um, the, the information and then you pivot it. So now it's literally all turned 90 degrees and that hence the term pivot and then it as it turns it it adds all the data together in groups and then you can drop it into an analytical table where you take the answers and say okay i want to group them by you know let's say for example we have location the location the number of times the times of the year and then it just correlates all the data so that you can look at okay in this location during this amount of time during this period of time we had this many answers this many answers so you're literally pivoting it 90 degrees to get uh, it to add differently than if you were from a normal column you know layout you pivot and, it and in, in in very lay terms the purpose of this is to kind of not only extract the data, but to give a, a more relevant answer to what the data suggests. Yes, exactly. Because in if you if you look at the questions and as a story, people are telling you, yeah, this is what happened. This is what happened. You know, on an individual basis. When you pivot it, it takes the answers in total and says this many number of people answered this way this many number of people answered that way so by pivoting you get groupings of data okay and then so this is really where we come up with the where you started to see the upward trends of oddly enough more time you spend in the woods the greater <laughs> the chances that you're going to see one of these things and you may have multiple sightings yes exactly okay, okay. great all right well listen carlos i appreciate it that's precisely what we were looking for and again folks this is this is the we're trying to apply hard science and hard mathematics to this question that a lot of i think a lot of our listeners may think 
I will never see one of these things, but I would like to. And this is uh, one way of answering the question that, well, if you spend more time in the woods, you're going to increase your odds considerably. Carlos, what would you say to the person who is somebody who works in the woods and says, I've done it for 20 or 30 years and I've never seen one of these things? I'm, I'm going into the realm of you know, a little bit of conjecture here, speculation, but how would you answer that person if they say, I've never seen one, therefore they don't exist? And this is a question for Will as well. Yeah, well, um, let I'll start off the answer by saying when I looked at the data from a from a year perspective, I saw a very, very consistent upward grade within this group. And the data again suggests that when I look at it from zero year to forty years, there is an absolute ascension. There is there's not even a, well, there's a couple of of uh, declines. But it generally, it's um, an upward ascension, and, and I guess my answer to the to the person who may be saying that is like when you become aware of their existence, or if you start to look at the environment as more of a of an uh, I guess you could say of not not necessarily a lab, but you start looking for things that are around you. You will begin to notice things. Um, and I think that the person who spends a lot of time, maybe works for the forestry, or maybe a professional hunter or whatever, I would say that if you look, you will notice things, especially in areas where there's, you know, campgrounds, water, game trails, and I and I think that the more time that you spend out there, the more the likelihood you will see something. What I will say is that you, the more time that you spend out there the chances of you actually have come across uh, some kind of um, evidence is very high. Whether you notice it or not is the real that, question. Yes, that and, that, and that's the, the kind of the point I was looking for. At, over, a, over a period of time, when you learn, what, when you know what to look for, because, Will, you and I have talked about this time and again, the evidence is out there. And people walk right by it. They don't even realize it. But once you know what to look for, it's almost as if you can't, you can no longer unsee the evidence that's right in front of you. And you begin to see things that are out of place. Right. Well, and there's there's other factors, too. I mean, whether it's logging or hunting or whatever it is you're doing, um, you tend to focus on, especially if you're operating equipment, like with logging whether it's a chainsaw or, or what have you, um, you're really focused on what you're doing with the, with the equipment and your safety. So you're not paying a whole lot of attention to things that, you know, and, and with the creatures, they're not just going to be wandering around aimlessly. So uh, when people see them, it's, it's usually intentional. So, fellows, having said all that, um, we're going to go ahead and delve into the interview that we recorded about all that information uh and then after that uh, we'll have russell who's our witness this week so fellows and folks stand by all right carlos is joining us tom do you want to kick this off yeah absolutely carlos thank you so much we this is something that will and i've talked about for a long time and will this is actually 
an answer to a question that I didn't know that you actually started back in the 90s. And the question is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's what are the chances in your lifetime, the audience out there, the average person could see a Bigfoot in their lifetime? And I think it's an important question because a lot of people think, well, gosh, I would, I would never see one. You know, it's, it's, that's just for other people. Well, this goes, and this goes I, in line with the questionnaire we did a while back, right? That's exactly what this is. Okay. This is, so we, we tried to. Oh, sorry. So before we go on, how, tell the folks, since we have a lot of new listeners, about what we did with that before we get Okay, going. sure. And by the way, we have Carlos on the phone who is fortuitously not only a witness to one of these creatures, but Carlos is a uh, uh, former math professor uh, computer scientist, so he is the perfect guy for this. Thanks. <laughs> well, it's true. And, That's true. <laughs> and so the question that we, we put out a survey, Will, uh, I believe it was earlier this year, and it's it, it's we've been soliciting some basic uh, answers to questions for several months, and basically it just has to do with the number of hours that people have hiked um, the number of years that they spend in the woods and that sort of thing. And, and Carlos has agreed graciously to take a look at the data, the raw data, and crunch it. And I'll, I just want to say this is, you know, we're trying to be as scientific as possible. It's like any other uh, survey, you know, there's a margin for error, but I think it definitely points out trends. And um, anyway, so... Carlos, I'm going to kind of hand this off to you. Okay. And then you may have questions for us. So let's, yeah, let's dig in on this fascinating question. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a fascinating, fascinating question. Um, but uh, I just wanted to start off by saying, uh, as a data scientist or computer scientist, you know, I look at these um, lines of questions like a math problem, um, there are what I guess you would call general assumptions that need to be made. Uh, and that kind of helps frame the, the data because what we're really trying to get to is we're trying to get to information. So we have raw data that we have to format in the right way, deliver it in the right means to the right people at the right time. You know, the, the way that we scientists or data scientists <laughs> kind of consider data as we kind of fold it and morph it into information. So I took your I took your data and I and I stared at it for a while um, to try to formulate those general assumptions. Uh, I was wondering if I could run those by you and, and the listeners so that we can get a sense of how we were looking at this. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And just, I think most people know, but just uh, make a real quick distinction between information and data. Data are just the numbers, and then the information is where those numbers become useful to answer a question. Is that a pretty good description of that? Or Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's exactly it. It's meaningless unless you format it and deliver it in the right manner, but an important aspect of that is also the context of the information and the timing of the information. So as, as long as we have the right context and the right timing, it, it's useful. 
And so um, one of the things I, I first started looking at is, you know, how do I categorize the data? And um, so you have a number of elements here. Uh, and it's really like, how many hours do you spend a year? How many years have you been doing this? Have you seen, have you had a sighting rather? Have you not had a sighting? And if you've had a sighting, how many have you had? And so as I, as I look at this, you know, that's the categorization that, that I tried to uh, in, sort of like, you know, uh, forge into this, into this data. And the crucial elements here, are those who are outside and how many years that they're doing this, you know, what kind of sightings have they had? So I've made a couple of general assumptions and see if you guys agree. Um, yes, it, uh, people who are uh, listening to these podcasts and and are in the topic have a general interest. Um, those who have a general interest in this have better awareness or some awareness of what may be going on in their area. So they're better um, or, you know, I guess better aware or more aware of their surroundings and detect activity. So, you know, that's, I guess, the context of this because, you know, the people who are answering here, you know, this are more likely listeners and have that kind of experience. Um, the other thing is something that we've talked about is that not everybody makes reports. So we're, we're looking at a segment of information of people who have experiences and have interest in the topic. Okay, so, so we're looking at a specialized group. Um, we know that a lot of people don't make reports, so we're looking at, again, a, at a nuanced set of data. And a couple of other general assumptions are that people can hike throughout the year. So when you're asking these questions, how many hours do you spend hiking, um, you know, that's that could be at any point in time when they're hunting. It tends to be seasonal, at least I know for me, because you know, when I like to go hunting, I know where I like to go, that I like to go at a certain time of the year. Um, and then when I do go hiking, I do go through familiar trails. Very rarely do I go trailblazing these days anymore, but generally it's, I'm going to go put in some hiking time and I, and I go do that. When I go hunting, it's even more of the case that I go hunting to a specific area where I've had success. Rarely do I break away from, but you know, there are times that, that I do, but generally I go to the same area. Uh, you know, we hunt during the day. Um, and also hunt uh, at night, but very rarely. So I'm, I'm making these assumptions that uh, most of these sightings probably took took place, you know, during the course of, you know, hiking or hunting familiar trails during a certain time during a certain season. And that hunters tend to be more quiet about their business. Um, hikers probably as well, but I know when I go hi uh, hiking. I tend to throw rocks and, you know, yell and that kind of thing. When I'm hunting, I'm very quiet. I'm very, you know, methodical about how I do this. And that kind of, I think, when I when I look at the information, that's sort of the, what's, um, I guess, the, the scaffolding in the back of my mind of how I look at this data when I compare numbers between people who are just hiking or who are just, you know, who are hunting versus the number of times that they've seen something and that there's there's a meaning there there's a there's a trend framework there also um just to give you general uh understanding of how i look at this we we're looking at the data and the data suggests the number of hours uh per year that people do this 
And there's there are people who spend very little time and a few people who spend a lot of time, but most of them fall within a certain standard deviation inside, you know, like the 80%, not the top 10, not the low 10, but the 80% in the middle. And a lot of these numbers fall into the range of 100 hours um, per year, 200 hours per year, 300 hours per year. And to get a general sense of what that means is if you spend 100 hours a year, that's basically like four hours every other weekend. And as you double that, that's, you know, every weekend and you know if you're 200 hours a year you're spending you know or maybe not every weekend but every week and then 300 hours is six hours per week and as you, if you start to look at it that way it's almost like a almost like a daily job thing you know it's like yeah i'm spending one day out of my work week out in the wild at 300 hours but when i start to look at these numbers that's sort of where i'm interested in because that's a substantial amount of time versus those people who only spend like an hour a week. And then the, the cases on the other extreme, are, you know, where they spend a lot of time, the numbers suggest uh, trends there as well. So this is how I'm, you know, kind of framing all this because as I look at the data, I start to formulate questions, all right? So let's take a look at some elements and compare to other elements to get, to get the answers. So, Having said that, I, I cleaned up the data, I transformed the data, and I and I did about 30 different passes at it. And I'm not gonna <laughs> go over 30 scenarios because I, I don't think we have that kind of time. But I, I will go over the most basic scenarios, and I think they they're very interesting. So, uh, do you guys have any thoughts on what I've said so far? Any any comments? I have a yeah, I do have a comment. I just want to say that my assumption is that these are random occurrences. These are not people necessarily out uh looking for the creatures these are people who are simply spending time in the woods and yet you brought up a really good point the number of hours spent a lot of the respondents i got the sense were woodworkers uh people who mm -hmm. make their livelihood in the woods either some of them i think may have been uh you know people that have got permits to go out and and you know do some sort of some sort of resource extraction like getting uh, firewood and that sort of thing. Others were loggers and others, you know, there's just kind of a broad scope. But again, I just want to emphasize, it seemed to me that these are just random occurrences, random mm. sightings, as opposed yeah. to people out there looking for them. No, absolutely. I would agree there. Uh, these are, I guess, people who, in the course of doing what they like, have these encounters. Absolutely. And uh, I guess we can start with the general count. Uh, it, I was surprised uh, that there were probably, I'd say one third of the people who, who took the survey have actually had um, sightings. And uh, there was, you know, in, in, and that's why I started thinking, okay, so what does this mean? How do we frame this? So my first, uh, my first uh, analytical point was, let's look at the number of hours spent a year versus those people who have actually seen something and where i see you know i can't show you the graph over the phone but where i see this is as soon as you start looking at people who have um let's say 25 to 100 hours per year you definitely see a line trend upwards and once you start getting into the 200 to 300 
there's an even more steep ascension. And if you look at the data continuously as you go out, it, it holds uh, even till about um, 1,000 or 1,200 hours, and then there's another peak out there. Now, now what that tells me, I mean, straight across, just in this, in this group of people, there is definitely a correlation between the number of hours that you spend a year towards the the encounters that have you know, people who've had an encounter. And so I thought that was interesting because I, I would expect to see that in, in the general sense, because um, the more time that you spend out there, the more likely you are to see something. But the fact that people are taking note and, you know, seeing something that they you know believe is a sasquatch uh, i think that's very interesting because it, it does suggest that there is that kind of trend you spend more time out there you're likely to see something out there that was one slice the next slice that i took a look at is okay so if you're out there and you've seen something what how many times have you seen it? And this was interesting because in that in that same segment of like people who are, that spend more than 100 hours to 200 hours, you know, and beyond them, you see a spike up there. And the spike is uh, the actual number of times we've had uh, the total number of people who have actually seen a Sasquatch more than one time is up there in the 10 to 20, and this, uh, this is out of the entire group. So roughly five to 10% of the people have seen it at least uh, twice, uh, which I thought was interesting, because I, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if that was gonna hold true from other slices that I've done with this, but it did. But this suggests that again, if you, even if, and if you spend more time out there, that not only are you going to see it, but there is a chance that you're going to see it more than once. And according to this, uh, it doubles as you go into the 100 to 300 hour per year range, which I thought was interesting because that means for sure <laughs> people that seen this casually, right, when they're doing this, the more time they spend, not only do they see one, but they're likely to see one at that rate. Carlos, are the spikes exponential? Are they really, in other words, a real steep spike, the, the one yeah, you're referring to? Absolutely. Um, I'd say that. And, and again, you know, we're, we're looking at this just from, from a small segment, but the, the spikes are pretty large. Uh, they go from uh, the number of times being about five to about 17 to 21 times during that period. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, uh, that's I, I thought that was interesting. And then uh, there is a little bit of a downward trend uh, as you go into the five or six hundred hour per year range. Then it spikes back up. But I think that that may have to do with people who actually spend their working time out there. And as we get into those ranges of hours, because if you if you work a full year, generally you're working about 2080 hours a year. And as we get into um the at least three months a year out there then there's another spike up there and that spike goes up to about let me see like 12 you know 12 different times so the there's that growth uh, compared to the normal growth again it's you know it's 
pretty significant because it, it suggests that at three months, you know, you're spending a season out there, you're going to see more than you would if you were just casually walking out there, you know, a week in a month. So that kind of shows a consistency, which I, I kind of expected that, but it's nice to be able to pivot the data and be able to see that. And then as you try to understand what it means, and as you put it, you know, there's some people who spend a lot of time out there versus some people who are just kind of doing it once a week. You can see that distinction. So that was my second slice. Then I kind of, I, I was looking at this in terms of hours, which, you know, this is just, I guess, really from, from a perspective of how many hours we spend a year, but what about those people who spend a lot of years out there? Uh, so then I started slicing this by the years that people are out there hi uh, hiking or hunting and those that have seen it. And, and this, I think, is really interesting because there are, um, I'm looking at a span of people who have been doing this from one year to about 40 years in the first trend. And just just as you would expect, if people are seeing something, um, the more time that they spend out there, if you if you extrapolate that um, and look at this, that upward trend is consistent. So we see that as the number of years, like let's say for example, um, people that have hiked uh, one to five years, they're likely to see maybe like a, like a count of two times. But as you go into people who have been doing this for maybe like, say, 25 years, then you're looking at a count of about four and five versus those that have been doing this for 30 years, which goes up to about eight, and those that have been doing it about 40 years, which goes up to about 11. So, in these are again extrapolated, um, correlated numbers, but they suggest again that if you're out there for a number of years and you're spending that amount of hours, your chances of seeing that, or at least the counts that have seen this, uh, the counts of the people who've seen this, are going up uh, pretty steadily. That was impressive. And then there, um, in data, you also have like outliers. And there was a couple of people that have spent most of their lifetime in the woods, which makes me rather jealous, actually. I wish I could do that. Um, but of those people that have spent 50 years out there doing this, uh, the extrapolation came up to about 16. So of that population, they have seen they've had more than one sighting out there, which is very interesting. Let so me ask you this, Carlos. Sure. In, a, in an overall sense, um, for our average listener, um, just looking at the big picture, can we extrapolate in general? What are, what are the chances that the average person in the woods Percentage-wise, I don't know if, the, if this if you can answer this or not. We'll see a Bigfoot. In other words, the listening audience out there, hey folks, you're listening to this. You may have thought that you'll never see one of these things. What does this say to that person? So, let me see if that makes sense. Answering this, so we've had it from at least from. From this crowd, we've had, let's see if I can do this really quick. Sorry. 
but it looks like. Hang on one second. So, roughly a twenty-nine percent chance that you would see something like this from the data of this crowd. So wow. Yeah, and 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 see that's why that's why I'm trying to trying to frame this according to the data that I you know that I looked at and trying to understand you know what this means it, it, these i mean that that is that is extremely high i think but i think that that's why with my general assumption being that the people who are responding to this have a general interest and have a general awareness and you know have been out there so we're looking at a specialized crowd now do i believe that's the, the percentage of the normal person to be able to see one out there no no i don't but, either but i still no. think it's a surprisingly high number yeah it, it, it is and, and that's um absolute um percentage you know of chances of the people who who've reported they've seen one in this population and that's why i said at the very beginning these are the and the general assumption is that these people have an interest they've been out there they've seen and they're willing to report it and they're willing you know willing to take the survey so I, I don't believe that's the the real number but that's the number of this crowd that i can tell you you know it, that's why i was i i thought 30 almost 30 percent of the people who have seen one in this crowd so that's a one in three that's so that's that's too high for a general you know population but of the people who reported this yeah that's what it was yeah, yeah, very significant number actually. And again, it just goes back to the the original question. I was assuming a lot of people who listen to our show, they find it interesting, they obviously the topics of interest to them. And maybe in the back of their mind they're thinking, well, I'll never see one of these things. And this sort of contradicts that. Yeah, I would I would say so. You know, I think you know we we didn't we didn't really we didn't really specify what type of sightings you know what type of sightings or or to classify all that. We're gonna you know a larger population set, but we we got like I said a special, uh, very niche crowd who spends you know some time out there, and some people spend a lot of time out there, but you know casual sightings. But again, it's the people who have general interest in this who are going to be aware. Like for example, you know I know that when I go out there, uh, I'm very quiet. I, I look around, I take note, you know, and you know the, these are just you know people that have that kind of mentality, have that kind well, of. Well, let's go back for just a minute mm -hmm. to Carlos pre even 10 minutes prior to the campground experience before and after because before um i don't think you had an ex you you didn't have an encounter right did you have That's an right. interest did you have what were your thoughts and what you, how was it afterwards you know 10 minutes before that i was not even thinking that i was thinking what a beautiful forest you know beautiful area you know, and just trying to get sight, you know, a sight of the the river along the canyon where I was driving. And once it happened, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I, I felt like there was an absolute desire to know more about this, you know, and, and I've spent 
um, all the years after that with it with an interest and I've had other experiences because when I go whenever I go out there now it absolutely is on my mind it's like you know um, I know these things exist you know I go hunting in the deep parts of Texas and you know and I'm walking through the forest and you know um, I I've had two other experiences while I'm in, while I'm doing those endeavors, um, you know, and, and it's just weird because I, you know, now I'm really hyper-focused on everything around me and I, I, I know what to look for. I, I know when I'm walking around, if I see breaks or if I see footprints or if I see any kind of, I mean, because generally that's the, the kind of thing that I would notice that, you know, there might be other activity out there. Well, once you know, once you've had that experience, uh, I think a good way to put it is you can no longer unsee the evidence yeah. that before was you would not have even thought to give it a second thought. Right, right. Yeah, that's I'm afraid that's uh, <laughs> that's sort of like the, the, the curse and the blessing of, of having an experience like this, because you, you yes. know. <laughs> But, um, you know, I also um, also compared um, if, if you look at all the people who have uh, spent a lot of time out in the woods and then put over the number of years that they've seen what what I'm seeing in terms of consistent trends is that from from our sample group that if you're out there uh, more than and it's the same the same pattern that's repeated as as you're out there for um, more than 100 hours and you've spent, uh, let's say the first group, for example, like zero to five years out there, you have counts of, you know, of an average of about 2.8 sites in that group, which is interesting because, again, this is a very nuanced group, but these people who uh, took the survey have actually had 2.8 average sightings when they've seen it more than once within that range. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. It's and really it it um, you know, I, I'm well, Will and I were talking about it earlier today about his sightings and um, how he classifies a sighting. You know, he has two sightings, but to me, I think it's maybe more, um, but he's just talking about real solid. There it was in my face, undeniable. And I think one of his sightings, uh, at least in my mind, was, you know, he's just real quick. They they ran up a hillside and they turned around and they looked down at their, this is at nighttime at the, the campfire, and they saw two of the creatures they saw the silhouette, the profiles of them rummaging and ransacking their camp goods. I think they're stealing food or something. Yeah, I'm, um, yeah, I'm kind of picky about those sightings, <laughs> what I call them. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that's that's excellent because that's, you know, when Will says he saw one, you can take it to the bank. He saw one. It's it's solid. So and so when we look at videos and that sort of thing or any kind of uh, photographic or video evidence, 
if, if Will says it's one, it's again, you can take that information to the bank. So, uh, so sorry, Carl, I, I kind of got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail there. No, it's okay. It's all right. But I, it's, I think... it's the purpose of all this. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. It's, it really is the purpose of the survey to answer that uh, question. Because before, I think it was, I don't know, I have no idea uh, what the chances are. And this kind of brings that home a little bit. Yeah, I think I think with um, with this survey, you can you again, if you if you frame it in the context of, you know, people who are taking time to be outdoors, you know, they they spend quite a bit of time. Like I said, you know, even if, if you're spending if you're every every week you're spending four hours, that, that's a pretty substantial amount of time. If you're out there truly walking around and you know and you're walking through the familiar areas, you're walking through areas that are probably trails that you know other creatures use. If you're hunting, then that's a, that's another significant aspect of this because one of the things that um, I like to do is when when I look at areas where I'm going to go and explore, I do look for campgrounds. I do look for um, water areas. I do look for trails, right? And I do read reports of where people go hunting. And as a hunter, you know, it, it's very difficult to get an exact spot. But, you know, you look on a map, you, you see where the, you know, where um, the campgrounds are, where the trails are, where the, where the water may be. And, you know, you go out there and you scout. And you're not the only thing doing that. And if, if you're really truly into uh, stalking, uh, let's say for example with me, hogs, you know, you, you follow them and you're and you're quiet. And other other predators that are out there that are looking for the same game are probably doing the same thing. They're they know where to look in the same areas that you know that I look. Presumably, the same areas where there's game there's water and there are you know there's access to maybe like trash cans so that other animals that are you know the animals that we would hunt for example can go and forage and you know kind of like look for food that has been left behind in campgrounds and these are the same areas that i think most people who go hunting and hiking would probably frequent more often than not and if you're doing that the right time of the year um especially for hunting you're bound to see other animals because that's exactly where you're placing yourself in that situation. And then if you're, you become more aware, like I have, um, deep in the forests of out in Texas or some other state for, for the people, right? When we're out there, uh, we're quiet and we're paying attention and we're moving bit by bit. We're taking note and, the, you know, you walk and you stay still. You walk and you stay still and you observe, you know, observe what's going on. I spent a lot of time doing that and, and that I see things, you know, I, granted, not always have I seen a creature, but I have had those experiences and it's because of where I placed myself. The first one was just coincidence. I was in a, you know, in a camp area next to a river and, you know, even though I wasn't hunting, I was right smack in the middle of that activity. And I think that is what skews these numbers. Uh, in that, you know, to a, you know, to to a high percentage, because these people are spending that kind of time out here. So, you know, it, it, it to me it makes sense. To me it makes sense. What 
I think would be um, a, a, a good way of comparing this is if if you're out there wanting to hunt and you find a good area because there's a lot of game, there's access to water, well, so do other creatures. So, you know, predators and other hunters, you, and I see that when I go out there. Does that make sense? Carl, yeah, it does. And it actually, you are bringing it up, and this is why it's so important to look at the data uh, as a scientist. You're bringing up something that I had not really, it's not that I hadn't thought of, I just, it wasn't really that concrete. And that is the association of encounters, these creatures, and the possibility that they are actively seeking us in the sense of getting what they want, you know, food. Uh, they're actively uh, aware of human presence, and they're also associating human presence with, you know, garbage and, you know, discarded food and that sort of thing which is what kind of what you and i talked about that campground i went and visited that campground um you remember we talked about that i would after i got done talking to you I, you know a couple of days later i drove there and it clicked i know why they're here they're coming from a national forest they're crossing over this river and they're getting goodies and that is something that I, you know, it sounds like you're sort of touching on that, that these things are actually aware of where we are and it's of interest to them more so than just curiosity. It's, it's beneficial. Yeah, you know, it is. And, you know, if you look at, I mean, if we, if we, if we start to look at this from a larger point of view, like for example, you know, of all the people in the area um, who have seen, um, you know, a, a Bigfoot, you know, there, some of them are not even looking. So in, in terms of real numbers, I think it makes sense to consider the the crowd who's actively going to the areas where you're going to see them and then compare that. Um, but you're right. These creatures are looking. They are foraging. They, I, I'm, I'm sure that they're out looking for an easy meal. And if you spend time in those areas, um, you're you're probably going to run into some sort of evidence. And if you're keen on that type of activity, you may be able to you know, increase your chances because you know what to look for. You know the areas that, you know, that you're looking are probably the areas where other creatures are also foraging or hunting. And it, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, it does. It's, it's a bit of, <coughs> excuse me, it is a bit of a conjecture but it seems like the data may kind of point to that. Yeah, it definitely is conjecture. But at the end of the day, um, if you're, you, you know, you're not going to see it generally from any other place in the natural habitat in, in the specified areas where they can get food, they can get water, they can forage, they can hide. And, and that's the that's why I think that this, this data kind of suggests that those people that are spending that kind of time have had better uh well i should say a higher uh, rate of activity than those that are that are not you know and like i said this is just about a third of the people who responded actually saw something yeah that's a very it's a high number but then again you think about who our audience is and the people that responded to the survey so i'm, I'm really curious about 
um, my gosh, you know, we'll, we'll, we won't know the number, but, you know, the people that have had encounters but haven't, have never reported it or mentioned it to anybody. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I've not really mentioned it to many people. <laughs> I trust you and will. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's just the reality of it. I think that most people who see something don't report it. In fact, um, I was having a conversation with, um, if, if it's okay to pivot here, um, I was having a conversation with um, the, the nephew of a friend of mine. Uh, this friend of mine has a, a huge interest in this, and he brought it up because he just asked me because we, you know, we go hiking all the time, and so when we were out there, he uh, he mentioned something about his nephew seeing something, and, and, and we talked, and you know, his nephew uh, was telling me that he was out hiking. Uh, out here in, in Southern California, not too far away from his house, in a hiking trail that goes r- right up to the to the mountains. Uh, and as he was hiking, uh, he kept he kept hearing uh, noise, and he just you know went about his business until he took uh, took a break from that, and he kept hearing the noise. Uh, and basically, what it was it was a uh, like um, something walking. Uh, above him, on the ridge above him, he was kind of in a valley along a ravine, and he stopped, and he kept hearing the noise, and when he looked up, he described to me um, that he saw an upright creature traversing, going from like shrub to shrub, kind of looking down, almost as if to see what he was doing, but you know, he he didn't even make note of it. He just thought it was either a bear or some kind of creature. He just he was just forced to face that because he sat down, kind of underneath the tree, looked up, and then had a, a ability to see what was walking. And he saw it. He said, it, you know, it was all one color and it was just moving. And he he didn't think it was a bear because of the way it was moving. And I thought, wow, you know. And here's here's a guy who, like, much like with with me, you know knew about some of the the myths lore legends that kind of thing didn't really even think anything of it sat down took a break looked up and saw and you know and how many times have people done that that they've walked through heard something and then heard you know what they thought was just a normal creature and then looked again and realized what they were seeing yeah exactly and you know what it it um, part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem, why it's underreported is who do you report it to? You've got two two major hurdles here. Number one, you've got the credibility, the believability hurdle. But then number two, you have there's no real central uh, clearinghouse to, you know, to report this information. So um, just out of curiosity, do you have any kind of a sense of the time frame of when this uh, experience happened with this nephew, his friend's nephew? Yeah, absolutely. It was in the fall. Um, it was in the fall, and that was probably about five years ago in, in, in my general area. Yeah, okay. And so he he's saying that he's believing he saw a Bigfoot. Is that right? Yeah, He well, he didn't know... Yeah. He didn't know exactly if it was, you know, uh, a Bigfoot per se. He saw a creature, 
and and then he started hearing you know when he started telling people that it was you know maybe he saw a bigfoot and the way he described it um he believes now that it was but as as he was saying at the very beginning is i didn't know what to know i didn't know what to think you know and, I, and i've heard of bigfoot but you know i never thought it would be around so it didn't even enter his mind that it could have been one until he you know a couple he started mentioning to a couple friends including you know, uh, his uncle, my friend, and, and and that's when he started saying, well, maybe you saw this. And he's like, well, I don't know. And they described it. And the way he described it was that it was walking kind of like in a stooped position, right? But, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, it, but in, as it was walking, it would have, uh, it was using its arms to go from one point to another, almost like cross-country skiing in the sense, you know, you're, you're walking, you're stooping, and you're using your arms, but not, you're not using your arms as legs. You're just kind of pivoting and pulling and kind of moving about. And so the way he described it and the way he motioned it was, you know, bears don't walk like that. Bears no, lumber on don't. all horse. Well, here's the thing. Bears, when they stand up, are just doing it to look at something. Bears don't walk on on two legs, uh, not for very long, not for many steps. It's they're not designed that way. It's too awkward for them. And besides, if a bear stands up, you can't miss the ears, and you know unless he's facing away from you, 180 degrees away from you, you're going to see the snout at some angle. And if he's facing away from you and on all and standing on two legs. There's those ears. You can't miss the ears. So it's, um, and I like the fact that this guy's. It, it sounds to me like he saw something and then started going through the process of elimination. Right. And then he ends up with. Well, it doesn't meet the criteria for any known animal, and honestly, that's kind of where my encounter started. Was. Um, it, it wasn't a sighting. It was it was it was a sharp whistle. It was just just a lot of circumstances, and it just didn't meet any criteria for anything. And um, and I think that's what a lot of people do is they if you if you're not familiar with Bigfoot, you're not familiar with um, the evidence and the right. the signs. Then you're left with nothing but this strange sighting, and what do I do with it? And you go through that process of elimination. Right. He, you know, uh, I, I didn't mention that he was a, a teenager at that point, um, young teen, you know, good kid, you know, straight A student, you know, graduated with honors. And, you know, from when, when I spoke to him, um, it, it wasn't, it was probably about a year or so after th- that particular incident, you know, I, what, you know, what it came across to me is that this kid was, you know, being very genuine, you know, he, you know, um, as he was describing it, you know, I could see the look in his eye that he, you know, he was saying, yeah, I didn't know what it was. It was moving like this and, you know, moving in a stooped position, using its front arms on a hillside to traverse horizontally. That's not a bear. A bear would be lumbering on all fours, you know, um, probably not standing up, you know, walking from, you know, shrub to shrub, you know, in the stupid manner. And that's what he was saying. He's like, I, I just can't be a bear. 
And I believe him. <laughs> well, the, the the walk that you just described, where it's like a cross country skier. Uh, Will, you've mentioned this numerous times. This is the what people describe. It's it's not a human. Well, even gate. it's not human. Even while I was listening to you say that, Carlos, uh, made me think about my second sighting, the big gray one, and and that's kind of what it was doing, even though it only took a couple of steps. Uh, instead of just walking into the brush, it reached up and grabbed an alder tree, like it was it was using all of its limbs to move. Yeah, and see, yeah, and for that you'd have to have a grip, thumbs. You know, you wouldn't be pawing that if you were a bear. <laughs> no, and that was no bear. No, I can it, tell you. Yeah. Well, will. And this is, it's bringing up kind of another question. It sounds like even on two legs, bipedal, these creatures are utilizing their arms as part of the locomotion. Yeah, probably be more so than we think. Yeah, I think so. One, one other thing, when, when I, when I did see, um, you know, well, my first sighting the, the the thing i think that really impressed me was the the camouflage quality of these things um i think that you know the the, the color of the hair against the the color of the bark was really um just uh, you know I, I would never have seen it unless it flinched and when it flinched you know, I saw it. I think when when these things when the, these things move, and they're not in their you know against a, a their camouflage state, you you can see the the shape of the of the body really clearly. You know, uh, for me, you know, if it hadn't moved, I wouldn't have seen it. But this kid described the hillside. The hillside was like um, dry grass kind of colored and, and this thing was really dark he said basically almost black but not not quite that color um that when when i when he saw it it was the shape and the movement that really caught its you know his attention and that's because he was able to really kind of see the contrast and, and i've seen bears up here and bears to me out here they they tend to they tend to be round stout and they don't really go much above the grass on a hillside especially the hills up here where the grass kind of grows on the on the side and it grows tall you really wouldn't see too much of them but something like like this moving where you can actually see the legs move and pivot in the arms you know that 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 i think is so distinct that no matter no matter who you are or what your knowledge of the, of the topic you know it's not a bear and, and, and it, for him, that was the first thing that he grasped onto, much like what I did when I, you know, had my first encounter. I, I knew it was in the bear. And, and, yeah, and that well, that's shock. Yeah, that's a good point, because if it had been a bear, you know, based on the height of the grass and the size of bears. But what you're telling me is that the contrast, not only the contrast of the creature against this brown grass, but the sheer size, the fact that he saw what he did, he saw the arms and the legs and all the movement and the leaning forward and all that, 
that has to be something big in order to see all that, to stand yeah. up against that tall grass. You wouldn't get that from a bear. Well, there's another no. aspect to no. that too. <clears throat> you know, our, our brains, human brains are kind of hardwired to look for the human shape. So when you see something that's a human shape, you're, you're not misidentifying it. That's what you're seeing. Right. I, I think you're right. And that's, I think, what really st stood out to me. And I think that's the shock factor that I'm talking about, because you you're, you see this human shape, yet you're not seeing a human, but it's moving similar or looking similar to to a human, but it's not. Yeah, it's, a, so that, it's in that ballpark framework. Yeah. Crazy. Well, Will and, and Carlos, uh, another interesting point is, I believe it's the human brain is hardwired to really pick up on lateral movement, you know, the back and forth. And so that's what we, Annette, you know, that flinching that you saw, that's, you said that that was the only reason had it not done that. It's very possible, very likely you would not have seen it. Right. It. Yeah, I, I I would not have seen it at all, and, and that that I think that's the that's the moment that really stands out in my mind. You know, that haunting moment, like, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> you know, and and again, you know, you mentioned that you know I'm, you know, I'm I'm a guy who believes in science, and you know, I believe in, you know, analyzing what I saw, and you know, as I'm as I'm re remembering this, and as I'm remembering the conversation that I had with this kid. You know, his, his thought process was very similar because he said, okay, so I don't know what that is. I'm leaving. And he left. And, you know, as he's going through the through emotions, you know, what was that? It couldn't have been a bear. I was walking. This. You know, the 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 mechanisms in our mind were thinking, well, it, it had to be a person. It couldn't have been a bear. You know, uh, that's what the in, that I think that's what seeds the intrigue, you know, because there's something there that you're, you're not able to process. And again, yeah, and you're going through that process of elimination. It's not this, it's not that, it's not that. So it's none of these known things. Okay, what is it? Right. That's what you're left with. Yeah. But I, 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 going back to the data, I think that one of the things that we can, I mean, as I'm looking at this, you know, and, and I'm looking, and, and like I've looked it over quite a few times a week, quite a few passes to make sure that I'm seeing the right kind of trends. It really suggests that for, the, you know, whoever was in this crowd, you know, we know that they spend time out there. Um, I did knock out some, some of the numbers that didn't make sense, like in you know, the ones that didn't report anything to try to look at a more concentrated um, view for the different slices. And as, as I'm looking at it, 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 it really is suggestive that the more time that you spend out there and the more years that you spend out there, the more likely you're going to see something. And I mean, that's, that's together, you know, um, understandable. What I think, I think what, what makes this really astonishing is that there is that sweet spot where people who spend up to three, you know, three months, you know, uh, of the year or more out there, that's when you really see the true ascension of numbers. So, and, and to me, that's suggestive of seasons. You know, it's like, you know, uh, if 
if I'm out there at the right season, at the right place, you know, um, by place, I mean, you know, the right, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, campsite or trail or hunting trail or something like that. And, you know, especially if you're a hunter, you're, you're aware of all your surroundings and you spend all this time. That's why we're seeing such a, an increase. And that means that if these people who are out there and spending a lot of time in the wilderness can see something, you know, um, repetitively throughout their life, then those people who are spending um, some time out there um, are likely to see something because if they're, if they're also engaged in that activity at the right place, you know, hiking trails or going camping or, you know, a lot of the hiking trails are also part of the hunting trails, you know, throughout the year, they see something at a smaller percentage. So, you know, I, I didn't isolate those numbers, but I think that if I look at the number of uh, charts kind of quickly, um, those that spend under 100 hours uh, of this particular crowd a year still had um, probably one or two instance uh, instances that they were seeing this. Uh, so, I mean, their percentage is a lot smaller, um, but... It, it still suggests that you spend time out there, you're going to see something. The more time you do it, the more likely. But in, in from a from a um, concentration point, those that are spending for 300 hours can probably have seen the majority of the, of the activity out there. I don't know if that makes sense. That Ram. makes a well, no, it, it makes a thousand percent sense because it's logical. The more time you spend out there, the, the greater the chances. But I want to ask this question. Actually, I want to ask you and I want to ask Will. What do we say to the person who says, hey, listen, I've been logging all my life uh, or I spent all my time out in the wilderness or I spent all my time in these areas and I've never seen anything. Therefore, it doesn't exist. I'm going to ask Will that question first. Um, Will, how would you answer that? Depends on how aware they are of their surroundings. I've talk to people and a good example with one guy that uh, uh, we had a crowd of people we're talking to and uh, we're talking about how much people see in their environment and this guy walks up he says I've lived here all my life I've hunted I've been everywhere in this area I said okay I pulled a topographic map out and I said with your finger show me all the places you've been every place he put his finger on was a road and I point, I'd point to the, the areas, the big areas in between the roads. I said, have you been in here? No. Nope. Have you been in there? No. Nope. Have you been in here? No. Nope. And this went on and on. He finally says, I guess I don't know the area like I thought I did all these years. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's a good point. And that's, I guess, Carlos, I, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot or not, but I'm just your opinion. Um. What do you think the science, what do you think the data could possibly say to the person who says, I've spent all my life out in the woods and I've never seen one of these things? Because we, you know, you hear those people, right? Yeah, you do. Um, I, you know, if we look at, I guess, a similar approach that what Will um, suggest now is you, you can't possibly say that you spent all your life in the woods because the the amount of woods that are you know uh, out there to be seen is so large you'll never be able to cover that so what you could say is you know in for the areas that i've been to i've never seen anything and that's the qualifier okay 
where have you gone? You know, where, where have you been to? Um, I've, I know that even if you're on the road, you might see something cross here and there, but you, in some of these forests that I've visited, you go 10 or 20 feet inside from the road uh, where the thicket is, you know, just, well, where there's a lot of thicket, a lot of trees. It's a whole other world, 10, 20 feet, 30 feet from the road. If you're not moving, you know, through that area, through the trees, through the brushes, there is so much that could take place um, that you would never see. I'll, I'll give you a good example. And this is off, off topic in the sense, but it's the same thing. So I don't know if you guys have ever gone paintballing, <laughs> but it, it, it's great, especially when you go with a friend who – who you just you, you love the friend, but you just want to shoot a paintball at him for whatever reason, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Uh, so we've gone in the forest, and you know, two teams, one's above, one's below, and you have to go. Uh, the the team below has to go flush out the people at top. So when you hide in there, and you, you're in you know camouflage or whatnot, that game can go on for hours because you don't see anything. You know, and I've and I've stood there in full camouflage, right? Uh, where people have walked in front of me, uh, five feet, ten feet, never saw me, because I'm holding perfectly still, uh, you know. And they're they're you know they're moving through the same forest. But imagine if people say, "Well, I've spent my life at the you know in the forest. Well, what have you done? Well, I've gone camping, I've gone fishing, you know, I've gone hiking. But you know, have you?" trailblazed have you gone through the trees have you really explored every single facet of the forest the answer is always going to be most likely no you know i you know rare i i would i I would be put off by leading someone saying oh yeah yeah, you you know every square inch unlike someone who serves in the forestry or child you know works in lumber industry or does some kind of maintenance out there and spends a lot of time but you're really just in the common areas so i would draw that distinction You took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly the point I wanted to make. So I want to I want to flip it around, flip the coin around. And now let's take a look at it from their perspective. So, so many times um, people have been in the woods. I've never seen one. Yes, that that's true. However, I would bet you dimes of dollars that they've seen you. And I know for a fact that they see us all the time, whether they've seen that specific person who claims they've never seen one, the creatures see us every single day. They see our cars, they hear the locomotives off in the distance, they see the planes in the sky, they know of our existence. And I gotta say, most of the times that I've had an encounter, and probably the most significant one was a year ago, August, was I was in an area where, will I jokingly say, the way I find these things is I go to where they're not, but they are, is I went to an area and I knew it was a total bust. And turns out that there was actually one of the most significant uh, encounters I'd ever had, but there was no evidence that it was there until we kind of put pressure on it. So Mm. um, I think that's a a good, good way to wrap this up. For uh, for both the people that believe they exist as well as the skeptics, um, Carlos, I want to thank you. This was 
an excellent interview and and chance for yeah uh, for us to pick the brain of a you know hardcore uh, math and computer science guy so <laughs> and Thanks. and somebody who has encountered the creature so yeah it was great yeah thank you i i enjoy this kind of thing i you know just give me um some data in a, in a couple of days and looking at it it just you know things things i enjoy doing i don't ask me why but uh, i do <laughs> yeah well you, you know when you and i talked about this earlier uh, you mentioned a concept that I found interesting, and that is you took the data, I don't know if it was a scatter chart or what, and you flipped it up on its side yes. to get another look at it. Real quick, what does that mean? Tell our tell our audience. Uh, what, what exactly, why do you do that, and what do you get out of it? So as you collect raw data, um, the answers have a range. And so you, you try to look at it from the way it was entered look at all the different ranges of answers for the different columns, and then you pick a column and you use that to drive the related or the correlated data. So for example, if we're looking at a, a you know 10 people who entered 10 different answers, you don't look at the data based on the people who entered it. You look at it from based on the answers that were put in there, and then you look at trends, and then there's other dimensions like time, place, that kind of stuff that, that, that can be applied. But you flip it on the side to be able to add, average, count, find the peaks and the valleys of the data. But you can't do that if unless you're looking at the data from the answer perspective. And then you can see those qualities and attributes of the data to suggest trends. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Carlos? You know we're going to have you back on. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, thanks, guys. I'd, I'd love to be on. All right, Carlos. Listen, yeah, thanks definitely. again, buddy. Okay. Yeah, my pleasure, Will. And, uh, you guys have a great uh, rest of your day. All right. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Carlos. Okay. You bet. We'll Take talk care. soon. Right, bye-bye. Hello, everyone. Today I'm speaking with Russell. Russell, how are you, my friend? I'm doing fine, sir. Good, good to hear. Good to hear. Um, you know, I like to just let witnesses talk about what they've seen and what they've experienced. So, I guess, how long ago did these events take place? It happened in 1971. 71, okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was 13 years old when it happened. Okay. Oh, you you and I are about the same age then. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, so what were you doing, you know, prior to when you first noticed something unusual? We were out at our camp that we normally went to for hunting. Um, that's what we were up there for, and that's what we were doing the day before, or that day. Okay. So go ahead and walk me through the events as they have, as they unfolded. In order to give you an idea of where our mindset was, um, we had two families out there camped out, out at this spot, which was in Calaveras County near um, Camp Connell. And this place where we camped was about two and a half miles from the 
closest good logging road. It was an old logging road that, and it's where they used to set their logs when they were logging. Sure. And we just, we found that we'd been making a camp out of it. Well, the two families that were there, myself and my stepdad and a uh, kid my age named Danny and his, his dad, we were out hunting that day. We split up and we happened to run across a couple of coyotes. My stepdad shot one of them and the other one got away. So we went and we met up with Danny and his dad. We told them what happened. We went back to camp. So that's what happened that day. Now that evening we were sitting there having fire or having supper around the campfire. And my stepdad happened to look up and see eyes up on the side of the mountain where we were camped at. Cause it was a mountain right there where we were camped and it was clear cut at one time. So there was no trees, nothing up there that was standing up yet. We see these eyes and, and they were fairly high up and my mom was getting a little bit spooked. And my stepdad, he says, oh, there's nothing up there. We didn't have any flashlights. We had some lanterns, and that was about it. But we'd had dinner, and he was, he was trying to show my mom that nothing was going on up there. So he took some rocks and was chucking it up this, this side of this mountain. Now, like I said, I was 13 years old. We had two vehicles. One was Danny's family, and it was a camper. And we had a van. My stepdad was a carpet layer. And the van, they were parked at 90-degree angles from each other. And I was sitting in the door of the van. It was I had it open. I was sitting there. My mom and Danny's mom were doing the, the dishes at the campfire. Danny's dad was shaving. Danny was sitting on a on a camp stool doodling with dirt, you know, with a stick. Sure. I could see everybody in camp. All of a sudden, this rock comes flying back in the camp, and it had to be four or five inches in diameter. And it hit the, the campfire ring by my mom and Louise, Danny's mom, and literally disintegrated. And like I said, we were hunting. Everybody grabbed their rifle. And and the, the eyes, they never really left. They were still there, mm-hmm. you know. And my stepdad yells up there, you better, you better get out of here if you're messing around. You're going to get shot. And trust me, he would have shot. There's no doubt about it. He's, he was not a nice man. He would have shot somebody if they were messing around. Anyway, the thing never left. It stayed up there. And he starts saying, well, you know, it's got to be a cat up in the tree or something. But it was walking back and forth on the side of this mountain. Right. So that's what happened that night. We finally decided, okay, we don't know what this thing is. We're just going to go to bed. It's not going to bother us. So we went to bed. We had no idea what it was. So we go to bed, and we get up before daylight to go hunting, and we take off, and it's still dark, and we pretty much forgot about that instant. We got up to the top of the logging road. We went one way, and Danny and his dad went the other way. And we met up again about 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning at the top of the road. And we're standing there talking, and, and my stepdad tells Danny's dad, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go around the mountain because I know the area best. We've been hunting up there since I was five, so we knew the area real well. Danny's family didn't know it that well. This was the first time they were up there. My stepdad said, you go over the mountain, we'll send the boys back on, a, on the road. So we did that, and Danny and I get back first. My mom's fixing breakfast, so we go over to the van where, where she's at, where she's cooking, and we're standing over the plates to get our breakfast because we were hungry. And I happened to look up the mountain. I seen Danny's dad coming down the mountain, so I said, "Hey, Danny, there's your dad." And I reached over to get my eggs and stuff. He turned around, and looked, and said, "Where?" And I turned and looked, and he's nowhere to be seen. I said, "Well, he was just there, and was only like a hundred yards or so away." 
he disappeared. We couldn't figure out what was going on. So the next thing we know is we hear somebody coming down the locker room. Danny and I just come down, and it was Danny's dad. He had thrown his rifle over his shoulder. He was running for everything he was worth, and when he got to camp, he was white as a ghost, and he had crapped his pants. Good Lord. He said he jumped on a, on a log, and this thing grunted and, and stood up. Danny's dad was tall. I, I'm guessing 6'2", six, 6'3", six, and he was looking up at this thing to look at it in his face. He took off running. He prayed to God it didn't follow him. Apparently it didn't because he got back to camp. We never saw or heard of it again. When my stepdad got back, we went up the hill, and we found where this thing had been all over that hill. He, it had been up there much longer than, than just that night because there was footprints everywhere, you know, and, and there was hair and stuff where it was laying down. But back then we didn't think about taking hair samples or anything like that. We just, you know, we just said, this is, this is kind of strange. Right. But that happened up there that time. With, oh, I should say the reason I mentioned the coyotes is my stepdad thought it might have been that coyote had followed us in the camp, too. Okay. So, now you realize, you said you realized before we started uh, talking about uh, that there was more that you realized later on that was going on? Yes, sir. After that happened, uh, actually after when we went home, um, we started thinking about it. And there were strange things that happened over the, a couple of years prior you know, to this incident. Um, we had my aunt staying out there, my uncle and stuff staying in a, in a tent. And my cousin and I had another tent that we were sleeping in. And she swore up and down. We were up in the middle of the night walking around behind her tent because she kept hearing footprints or footsteps going back and forth. We also went out there sometime for fishing in the summer. Again, it was my cousin and I and, and his family and my family. And it snowed. It was like June June or so, and it still snowed about two, three inches. And we woke up and got out there to play in the snow, and we found these footprints coming down the side of the mountain, and it was a, a gooseberry bush. I didn't know what kind of bush it was until I looked it up here just probably about a couple months ago. It was a red berry with all these real sharp spines on it. And right. something had peeled them open and ate the insides out and left a pile of them, the, the skins laying there. And there were several things like that had happened well, you know, we start thinking about it, said, man, this thing had to have been an area longer than just that time. Yeah, you start putting you know, two so, and two together over time. Right. And none of us had even considered it, it being Sasquatch or Bigfoot until after the rock was thrown and, and, and Danny's dad had to jump up on him. Did he ever talk about it later when you were an adult? You know what? We we came back from camping. They never went up again. We we broke contact with them. I don't know what happened to them. Wow. So, so it's we, one of the things we never camped at that spot again. We found another spot that was a couple miles away, yeah. but we figured we'd not press our luck. Probably a good idea. Yeah. My guess, looking back on the situation, I think there was a family of them there, and it was up there keeping an eye on us, make sure we weren't doing something we shouldn't be. Yeah, that's very possible. But that's just my opinion. Sure. That's just my opinion. Yeah, we see that a lot of times, you know, where, uh, you know, if they're in the proximity where there's a group of people or even an individual person, uh, you know, they'll watch just to kind of make sure that, you know, they're, the people aren't coming after them or doing something that, uh, might be adverse to whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. Yep. 
And I'm not the kind of guy that will say something's Bigfoot when it's not, when I'm not sure. sure. That time, I'm absolutely sure what it was. There was no doubt in my mind. Seeing the footprints and the hair and, you know, throwing rocks. Bear don't throw rocks. No, absolutely not. Throw rocks. And you'd have to be an idiot. I mean, we were all armed up there, with the exception of my little sister and Danny's sister. They weren't armed, but everybody else was. We were all of age to go hunting. Like I said, that was my first year of actually hunting deer. Because California's law says you have to be 13, or it did back then. Mm-hmm. And, and, you're right. and you're right, back in those days, you know, people had to really be careful. I mean, because if you were screwing around with somebody hunting, you could get shot. Right. Right. And like I said, my stepdad was not the nicest of guys. He was violent by nature anyway. Right. So he would have had no problem shooting somebody. Did you ever have any experiences so, after that time period, or...? I did, not there. Um, had an incident in Alaska when we were living there. I can't say it was it was Sasquatch or Bigfoot, but it was weird. Um, my uncle had some property up there, and we were hunting for moose. And this was like 2003, I think it was. And we were staying in a barn that he had that was away from the property where the house and stuff was by a couple of miles across the highway. And we were sleeping in the barn, and something was trying to open up the door to, to get in. And again, you know, I can't say it was Sasquatch, but it was just really eerie. And what, and else, I used, what else other than a person is going to try to get into a cabin? Well, it was it was a barn. Oh, I see. I see. It was a barn. And I had bungee corded the door shut with some real strong bungee cords mm-hmm. because there's a lot of grapefruit and stuff up there. Right. You know, so I wanted to make sure nothing could get in. Well, this thing was picking up the doors and bringing them out away from the barn in order to, to get access. And I, I heard it, boom, 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 it kind of bounced, and it woke me up. And I woke up my, my cousin, who's a lot younger than I am. He was like 14 or 15 at the time. It was his dad's property. He was staying out there with me. I said, hey, there's something trying to get in here. So so I went and turned on our four-wheelers, because we had four-wheelers, kicked them on, turned on the headlights towards the door. And I said the same thing my, my stepdad did. I said, if you come in here, you're going to get shot. If you're yeah. messing around... You know, and nothing, I didn't hear anything. And finally, after about 10 minutes, something ran away. It was hard to tell if it was bipedal or not. Yeah. You know, because sometimes moose, they may, they may sound bipedal. Sure. But I can't see a moose trying to get that door open. No, and, it, and if it was a grizzly, you'd probably see claw marks, you know, on the door. Right. Right. And there was none. That's very interesting. And the, yeah. last, thing, you know, the last thing I had happen to me was actually in Montana. Um, we were hunting elk outside of, um, oh, what's that little community? It's off Highway 15. Anyway, we were out there, and again, it was away from the highway. And we'd only seen moose or elk the first time that we were out there. They ran by us at light speed. Right. I don't know if you've ever hunted elk or not, but oh, they yeah. could move. Yeah. So what I did is I found me a place where I could build me a, a ground blind. And where it was is there was a, a gate that was left open. And I went through it. It was like 40 or 50 yards the other side of the gate. And about 100 feet, 150 feet behind that was a cliff that went up 200 or so feet. It was real tall. Mm-hmm. So I got up in there and I found me a great place and made a blind. And I was waiting there and, you know, waiting for evening hunt. And it was just starting to get dusk. It wasn't dark. It wasn't daylight. It was just dusk. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there with my back to this cliff. 
and I hear something, I look over, and here's a, a cow moose and a calf working towards me. I think, oh, man, if I stand up and let them see me, they're going to run off, and that's great. Mm-hmm. But if there's a elk in the area, they're going to take off, too. Right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to handle this? Because I don't want them to get too close because a moose will kill you, you know? Right. So as they're, as they're getting closer, next thing I know, the mama pops up her head, and they both scamper off, and I'm thinking, well, that's good but I couldn't figure out why they did it. All of a sudden, behind me, between me and the cliff, and it, it, there was a lot of brush and stuff there, I hear this. It was a, a combination of roars slash growls, whatever it was. It was no bear. I'd never heard it before, and it lasted 15 seconds or so. Scared the living crap out of me. I grabbed my rifle and picked it up, and I turned it on facing it, and I'm reaching and trying to find my backpack and get everything in it. I throw it on my shoulder, and I back off the mountain, slowly watching the brush. Mm-hmm. I, this it, it was it was horrendous. It was loud. It was long, and it was a real guttural thing. And I backed away, and and I I worked my way back to where we were parked, and I waited for my partner to show up because we we were hunting there together. But I'm telling you, I, I can't tell you what that is. I can't tell you it was a Sasquatch. I will not say that's what it is. Sure, but it scared the crap out of me. It really did. You know, if it was, a lot of times, you know, if they uh, they think a person is sort of encroaching on their hunt, uh, you know, they'll issue a challenge like that basically to say, get the hell away. So, I mean, it, it kind well, of fits, got, it sort of fits the mold, if you I know what I mean. Yeah, that's a, that's a good time to back out of there and leave. <laughs> well, fascinating yeah. stuff, Russ. I mean, very interesting. You know, I, I never thought about going to look for for a Sasquatch or anything like that all these years until just about a year or so ago, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to start looking again. I'm going to go out all this time. I said, no, every time I ran into them, it was, they, you know, I just happened to be in the wrong place or even the times I didn't know what it was. Sure. You know, they found me. I didn't find it. I always had a thing about going and looking for trouble, but I think I'm going to start going out and seeing what I can find. I'm 59 years old tomorrow. Oh, you know. ha- happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. But I, I think I'm finally ready to go out there and actually look. I've been I've been living in the woods all my life, uh-huh. but I've never taken the time to try and find one of these things. I just, there's something about it, but I think well, I'm ready. Since you're, uh, since you're in California, maybe you and I can link up sometime and, uh, and go out there together and take a few interesting places. Oh, you're not in California anymore. No, sir. I'm in Wisconsin. Oh, I see. Okay. Actually, I think we've got some people in Wisconsin. I think so. The only thing I hear about around here is, is the bees from Ray Road. Then I've been out there, and I don't see any habitat. Yeah, you got to be in the right location, that's for sure. Because I know what it takes for a large carnivore or even an omnivore to survive. Right. I don't, I don't see the cover. I don't see the concealment. I don't see the food sources. I mean, they grow, they grow food out there. Sure. But no, you de- I, I just don't see it. You definitely got to have the support, you know, the right area to support, uh, you know, a species of animal. Yeah. Well, listen, very good, my friend. Say, That's very interesting. I have to say, I do appreciate your books. I'm sorry, what was that? I do appreciate your books. I've been reading reading your books and, and what have you. I do appreciate it. Oh, great. Thank you. Appreciate that. I try to get a, give a few tips anyway. Yes, sir. I've got the first 
one uh, one-on-one books mm-hmm. on equipment, and I've been picking up some of the equipment as I go along. So, okay, great, great. Yeah, that's a, that's a big step forward if you you have the right equipment because you know as well as I do a lot of times, especially with wildlife, it could be a once in a lifetime whatever it is you find. You're never going to see it when you expect it. This is true, very true. All right, my friend, well, listen. Thank you for sharing that. I certainly appreciate it, and keep in touch with me. Yes, sir. Welcome back, everybody, from the break. Fellas, uh, Brian, Tom, how you guys doing here? I guess we got lots of questions today. Pretty good. Yeah, very good, very good. Good, good, good. Well, Brian, good to hear guys. from you. I haven't talked to you for a week or so. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it up to you guys which one wants to start. I know, uh, Tom, you said we've, we've been getting a lot more than the usual number of questions, which is good. Yeah, yeah, we did. We've got quite a few of them. Um, okay, sure. And this is actually uh, this very first one is uh, from a guy that we had on uh, earlier this summer, a guy named Jason, who Jason is, uh, he's an Oregonian as well, lives up here in Oregon. Um, Okay, so he's just giving me a quick reminder. We did an interview with him on Creek Devil uh, not too long ago. Um, And uh, he asked Will, he talked about not wanting to be intrusive with people's lives. Um. Sorry about this. I haven't pre-read this message here. I'm just going to go through it real quick here. Um, is, he wants to know if there's any way, anything that we can do to help. Uh, it sounds like he's interested in learning quite a bit more about the topic, uh, Sasquatch. And um, uh, I think, you know, the obvious answer to that, of course, Jason, is uh, you're doing the right thing. Uh, there's two shows out there that offer good information uh, or offer information on uh, on this topic. And I'll just unashamedly say it's the Creek Devil, everybody else. <laughs> Don't go to everybody else. <laughs> um, so anyway, that was that was the first question. So I'll, I'll pass this off to Brian. Okay, well, I was just wondering if you had a chance to listen to the Joe Rogan show from two days ago. Because uh, Dan Aykroyd was on there, and the subject of Bigfoot came up, and Dan Aykroyd said that, yes, he's 100% a believer, and they were talking about that. And I I thought one of the interesting things, though, about that was they were talking about um, population. And now this is is kind of interesting because Joe Rogan, he claims that he believes in the subject – but he believes that they existed a long time ago and that they, they don't exist anymore. But it seems like there is a lot of evidence that um, their population is, is growing. So I think it's kind of maybe the reverse of what Joe Rogan theorizes. Right. Well, you and can I'm have all kinds crazy. of theories, but if you don't have some kind of evidence to back it up, then the theory is not much good. Um, I, I know I spoke with Joe for an extended time period when we filmed for the Sci-Fi Channel a few years back. And I, I think I think he wants to desperately see evidence, but the people he's gone out with were unable to produce that. 
And that doesn't uh-huh. mean there's no evidence. It just means he went out with the wrong people. Um, yeah. The population, in fact, isn't increasing. Yeah. Now, now, kind of a follow-up to that. Do you think that their population is increasing at the same level as human population is increasing, or is maybe more, or maybe less than than the the growth of the human population? You know, I'm not sure how we correlate that because you, you have to have a baseline to start with, and then to work from there over time, showing. And with these things, we don't really have any way to measure population growth. Um, the only thing I know is told by one of my sources that the population, you know, was it was in a certain range now. So which uh, could be just double what it was in the 50s or much more than that. We don't know. Yeah, because, you know, it's inevitable that as as long as we continue our population growth and they continue their population growth, at some point we're going to clash you know, I don't know how how soon in the future that is, but well, in the nineteen, I was told by my sources that in the nineteen fifties they knew, uh, or had a pretty close estimate that on the North American continent at that time period there were at least fifty thousand of these things, which isn't a huge population, uh, but today it's much higher than that and growing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, getting back to the uh, the population thing. Both in Northern California, state of Washington, here in Oregon, uh, I think going back to 2016, 2017, and 2018, um, were huge fire seasons for the for the National Forest Service. They actually were taking funds. My understanding was they were taking funds from uh, other bu- budget departments just to you know pay the bills for the for the firefighting. This year. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, this year was a very, very quiet season, uh, both in Oregon, California, and uh, and Washington. I think up in Canada as well. Um, but the point that I'm making is with these huge fires. I mean, they're 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 very large. There's going to be that explosion of the green leafy stuff that's going to come up, and there's a whole new, yeah, yeah, ecological cycle that starts all over again. And do you think that would be a contributor, contributing factor, you know, to uh, a larger population of these things? Absolutely. Anytime you got uh, a lot more food available for the the prey animals, the predators are going to uh, reproduce in correspondence to that. So we can look forward to probably in the next not too distant future. Uh, an increase in population, both of the certainly the prey population and the predator, of which these things are we, we know are top of the food chain. You're right. Hey, well, I wanted to ask you because um, I, I I was uh, just doing a little research on mountain gorillas, and um, just in terms of uh, birth rate. Okay, they they say that the average adult female. A gorilla will give birth about once every four years, and um, well, they say that about a quarter of of the infants die within the first year, and most of the offspring don't make it into adulthood. And I was just wondering if you thought that maybe the numbers might be similar for Bigfoot. I mean, I guess that's kind of a speculation question. You, I mean, I don't know if there's any evidence, but uh, <clears throat> I haven't seen any evidence suggesting either way, but. We are seeing a lot of juveniles 
um, in the past two years. And uh, sorry, my voice is a little <clears throat> a little raspy this morning. I'm getting a cold. So, um, but um, there isn't any indication that they die off quicker or that they only breed every few years. Uh, you know, they could give birth every year, as far as we know. And we're seeing very young ones each year. You know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, because we're talking about, you know, the infant mortality of these things. And again, like Brian said, you know, speculation here. But um, when there is some sort of, well, infant mortality or adult mortality, um, do we have any idea or, or any clues uh, as to how they deal with it? Do they bury them? Do they eat them? What, what, any ideas? Well, we simply don't know. I mean, we do have information that they, they will eat their dead. Uh, there's ever any other evidence that indicates they bury them. I guess it depends on the group and uh, their particular mindset. You know, it's interesting. Now, I uh, Anyway, I was just going to say real quick, I, uh, I watched a documentary uh, yesterday on, um, yeah, it's pure speculation, but it just had to do with the uh, conflict between um, uh, Homo sapiens and uh, the predecessor. Actually, it wasn't a predecessor. They, they, I think they're parallel groups, Homo sapiens and Homo erectus. And when they would come together, it was... Uh, quite often, there evidence within the bones that they would cannibalize. Uh, the Homo erectus would cannibalize the humans, the Homo sapiens. And and they think but, they were among Neanderthals as well. Same type of uh, activity then. Right. Now they don't know if Neanderthals were cannibalizing themselves or something else was doing it. And yet people have to remember there were as many as seven different hominid species existing at the same time that's what they know there could have been many more interesting and so i i know that the uh, or i've heard rather the um cannibals you know cannibal tribes in in various parts of the world suffer from a condition where if they eat another human they get prions or prions i'm sure how that's pronounced which ultimately gives you the spongiform brain disease, mm -hmm. uh, you know, chews up your brain. And I wonder, just curious, if that wouldn't have been a contributing factor, if Homo sapiens did not engage in that practice, or to the extent that these things did, I wonder if that would be a contributing factor to why Homo sapiens are around, are around and these things are not. Well, it could be. It really depends on the species you know, and what they're able to tolerate because some other, there are other animal species that do um, eat their own kind and it doesn't seem to affect them. Okay, interesting. You know, well, this doesn't relate to cannibalism necessarily, but I did read with uh, regards to gorillas that if there's a group and a female has, let's say, an infant and that female later on, like, leaves the group, they say that most of the time, the dominant male of that group and uh, will actually kill the infant, which I thought was harsh. I didn't know that gorillas would do that, but uh, not, do you think that the same? It's, it's not just gorillas. It's many other primate species will do that. It's, uh, you know, the dominant, and not just, not just those primates. Uh, I see it with lions and other animals. You know, the dominant males in a group 
um, you know, if the offspring don't belong to that particular individual or individuals, oftentimes they'll kill the young uh, of, you know, another male, you know, to sort of maintain their bloodline. I mean, they're not doing it consciously, but it's it's how nature works. Yeah. Do you think that Sasquatch does that? It could, because here's an interesting tidbit that uh, kind of leads me to think that. There was the story... Um, from 1967, uh, you know, the logger who witnessed the Sasquatches sniffing the rocks and stacking them up. Uh, the female had a young one with it, and it appeared to the witness that she always kept her body between the male and the offspring, indicating that the male was not the father of that offspring. Oh, okay. You know, almost as if shielding it to protect the young one. Huh. You know, it's interesting because um, it just underscores the uh, brutality of uh, of the wilderness, you know. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we live in a pretty uh, social, socially tame society compared to that. I mean, in that case, yeah. it could have been, that female could have been part of another group and, you know, for a time separated from that group or you know, on the outer edges with a male from another group or a lone male, you know, and and that male could have, you know, given the opportunity to kill the young in order to establish dominance and maybe create his own group. It's interesting. It's an interesting possible window into what was going on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we know that um, chimps, have been seen not killing. I don't know, but they may kill other chimps, but they certainly kill monkeys and eat them. Yeah, and they do kill other chimps. Excuse me. Hey, this is a question, both I guess for for you, Will and and Tom. Uh, did you guys hear about this this monkey that supposedly got loose in? Uh, Santa Fe, Texas, not Santa Fe, New Mexico, not the capital of New Mexico, but Santa Fe, Texas, there is a primate and they describe it as a monkey, but I mean, who knows, but apparently it's, it's a number of residents have reported seeing it and it's, uh, violent. It's been attacking. I I think it's, there's been some unconfirmed attacks, they say. Um, I haven't heard about that. Yeah. And uh, this is a quote from an article. It said, just had a monkey try to attack me while checking my mail. Uh, a woman reportedly said on Facebook, I've spent the last 20 minutes in my car. And, uh, and I mean, they say it's a monkey, but I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe it could be juvenile Sasquatch. I mean, Oh, sure. It's possible. Now where, I mean, I'd be curious to wonder where it supposedly escaped from. I mean, those things are, are fairly well yeah. documented. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It didn't say, but it's in uh, Santa Fe, Texas, which is, I think on the Eastern side of Texas, but um, to, our, yeah, to, our, to our listeners in that part of Texas, uh, let us know if you've heard anything about this. Yes, and this just happened in this past week. So, um, and they they didn't catch it yet, as far as I know. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, it is an interesting story. I imagine wildlife would be, you know, whether they have DNR or whatever in Texas. I would think that they're looking for, and you know that the fact that you said it's so violent. If it is a chimp, that could easily explain what, you know, it could be part of the illegal, uh, you know, pet trade. And maybe the people let it loose. Maybe it 
actually violently got loose or something. I don't know. You know, and chimps and other primates like that in their natural condition are, are fairly violent. They're not like the uh, the funny ones we see in movies and television. They have to be well-trained to be like that. In their natural state, they're not like that at all. Yeah, there was a documentary on, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, I don't know, not really disposal, but the, the live chimps that were used in uh, medical testing and that sort of thing were transferred to this island in Africa. And I don't remember which, which country in Africa. But the guy that had transported him over there went back to visit uh, one particular chimp. And he was, this is interesting, he was able to go back and actually visit this chimp and have physical contact with it. You know, they, it's on an island, so they had to get there by boat. And they, it recognized him. And it also recognized the guys that were uh, that operated the boat because they made many trips there and they'd throw food at them. But the guys in the boat would not get on the island. They said, "No, no, 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 no. You get on that island; these things are going to tear you to pieces." Um, but you know, the the trainer, whatever he was, for this one chimp, was able to go there and uh, you know, physically, you know meet with it and stuff like that and, and recognize him, you know, hugged him and stuff. But uh, he's, they, they made it very, very clear. Don't go there. Because <laughs> uh, these things, will they'll just gang up on you and you're done. Your history. I, I saw a video of that place once when a boat approached and they, they would take them food, but they wouldn't get off the boat. And uh, in fact, because you, you could tell that the chimps were pretty violent, pretty uh, aggressive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's the same place, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, they just brought a trainer or something, something that obviously one of the chimps knew that had contact with in the past. But I was thinking, you know, there's not enough money in the world to get me off that boat. I'm not sure there's enough money in the world to get me on the boat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Tom, that that's a good question because, uh, or a good point because, uh, it, the fact that the chimp recognized them it just shows how good their memory is. It makes me wonder if um, when Sasquatches leave an area, because, well, as you said, their range is quite a long distance. Um, and it seems like when they come back, it makes me wonder if they just come back because that's their natural way or if they actually remember specifics about the areas that they come back to and whether it's more deliberate than I guess natural. Oh no, it's deliberate when they return to those areas. It's you know it's part of their their hunting patterns. So do you think they recognize certain I don't know houses or farms that they come back to and they each year when they come back? Oh sure, they're going to have a um, recognizable features that helps them navigate those places. <laughs> you know, and I think they. They also, uh, that's a good point, Brian. They, um, I think they run along like corridors of, uh, I don't know if it'd be ridge lines or, you know, probably the ridge lines in the daytime, maybe the valleys at night, you know, down at the bottom where the creeks are. Because um, I'm looking at some of the maps, the topo maps uh, in my area, and I could see, you know, the spots where I've had an encounter, and you could just see a very, very long, uninterrupted 
area where they could have a good corridor with uh, probably zero human contact for miles around. Well, it's going to be going to be like us, you know. They're going to use features to navigate by, so uh, whatever works the best for them. Yeah, well, here's a question too, because uh, that that monkey that I was telling you about, or the, the escape so-called monkey in in uh, Santa Fe, Texas, they've also seen it uh, in trees and swinging from trees. And how rare is it? Do you get reports of sasquatches being in trees? You know, much more often than you would think. Uh, it's not something that's really focused on because, you know, a lot of people aren't getting the reports of it. But uh, I've had enough reports where it's certainly a feature. Mm-hmm. Well, I, didn't we have a guy on some time ago that had one that had actually jumped out of a tree? Yes. On, on the ground. <clears throat> and... You know, it was a confrontation. It was a de- deliberate act right in front of him. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, our guest, Rebecca, that we did the four-part series with, she also saw one or two of them in trees. And in a way, is that kind of like them being in a tree stand, like a hunter, waiting for prey? It's possible, sure. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's good that you brought that up, Brian, because that would be the last place in the world I would want to be if these things were around <laughs> is either in a tree stand or up in a tree. <laughs> it, it wouldn't Where be a good situation. Go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they can probably, I'm guessing that they can jump from tree to tree and they can probably do it uh, far better than a human could. Oh, yeah, and certainly the younger ones. I mean, if you get one that's big and heavy, it's probably not as likely that's going to happen, but... Uh, certainly the younger or the smaller ones. Yeah. Oh, that would be an unnerving situation. Um, okay, I got a guy. Uh, Adam Rodas, and he's a big fan of the show. Says he listens not only to Creek Devil, but uh, the previous uh, podcast, Witness of the Unknown. Both of those are excellent. And uh, he's born and raised in Ohio. Spent a lot of time in the outdoors there. And... Um, mentions uh, he's in quite a bit in the southwest part of the state um and he's got some strange experiences in the woods uh, loud noises howling grunts howls uh, one was too close for comfort and um apparently he's got a long history of of hearing this sort of stuff so it sounds like he's recently come across bare footprints too large to be a human uh he doesn't specify the size or the length of the footprint. So, Adam, if you're listening, uh, maybe shoot us another email and let us know uh, if you did take measurements. That'd be great. Um, I guess what he's asking here is, are they in this part of the world, you know, in this neck of the woods, you know, uh, Ohio? And um, and I, so I think that's the, uh, the main question. He's also um, possibly interested in... Uh, speaking with us so uh, yeah by all means adam uh, shoot us your phone number or let us know and we can contact you we communicate by skype so that'd be great yeah we can maybe bring him on with the q a for next week yeah but yes yes ohio we get plenty of reports from there and excuse me so 
I've looked at Ohio. I've never been there, but uh, I've looked at it on Google Earth. It looks like it's another one of those places that has long stretches of national forest and corridors where these things could go up and down. Yeah, certainly if um, you've got got the areas and um, and the food sources. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, and it seems like Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, those are those are all areas that have had plenty of activity. Right. Hey, well, I got a question. This is uh, maybe kind of an obvious question, I guess. That I, I haven't heard anybody really ask, but since Bigfoot are located in all of the continents except for Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, what about them in Africa? I mean, obviously gorillas live in Africa, but I mean, have there ever been any reports of uh, a, a, a huge primate other than a gorilla living in in Africa? Like any, any Sasquatch reports in you Africa? Know, surprisingly, I do have a couple of reports from there. Um, not as large, excuse me, as the creatures here, but... Uh, I suppose in that part of the world it would be more closely related to the Yeti. Okay, okay. Well, that's an interesting question. So is there a a distinction then between Yeti and one of our four subspecies here in North America? You know, not a big difference. I mean, obviously we're going to get some physical characteristics that are different. But um, enough to make them a different, at least a different variety. Not not maybe species wise, but um, you know because of that separation in the a breeding pool. Right. Okay. Sure. So you get a variation uh, in species, kind of like us. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. And well, you know, again, talking about the yeti. Um, this is just my own personal question. Do you think they have uh, the same height that some, you know, some of our North American Bigfoots get up in the areas nine nine foot and and I think even taller? Yes, um, and I'm getting that from the Himalayas. I have a contact there in the Southern Himalayas. Okay, I have read uh, reports, and you know, it's it's the only thing I can go on. But some of them in the Himalayas are exceptionally aggressive, and the locals go out of their way to avoid them. In fact, I'm hoping to get uh, our good friend Matthew there on the show here in the near future. We just have to coordinate uh, the times with him, but he'll give us a full rundown on on what he knows. Okay, and he's he's from that area? Yes, he's actually, uh, he's English, but he, he lives and works there. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, he's got some great contacts there, so he he's very uh, uh, very informative. Okay. Yeah, I, what I find interesting are the consistencies in behavior between what we hear in the North American Sasquatch Bigfoot and similar behaviors with the screams and the yells. Very similar. Uh, yeah, throwing objects, that sort of thing. It just really lends to the whole, um, you know, just kind of builds up a kind of like a knowledge base of evidence that these things, they're, they're real, you know. Right, and, and we're also going to be getting 
Um, I'm hoping mo- next Monday, um, a week from tomorrow, our good friend Bruce in Scotland. I'm connected with him on Skype now, so we're going to uh, hopefully we can get coordinate with him to get him on the show. Um, and he's a professional bodybuilder. He's gonna We're going to talk about the caloric intake and all that kind of stuff. So I think he can help oh. clarify a lot of that for us. So if anybody's got yeah. questions about all of that, send them to us. So when we have Bruce on, Bruce can answer those questions. Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, that's I would love that. That'd be a great uh, Q&A. I was watching a documentary on the caloric intake, you know, estimated caloric intake of uh, sauropods, you know, back in the days of the dinosaurs. And it was phenomenal. But they were able to get it on a daily basis and that's one of the questions that i hear from people is well what do these things eat how do they live where do they get enough food in their areas to to survive you know and this is these are legitimate questions from people that would maybe be either skeptics or or on the fence you know they want to believe in them but they want to know how you know that's a good question uh to ask how do they live? It is. And I, I want to do a little more research before we, uh, between now and then, so that um, there was there was a video I saw some time ago, and the guy was talking about, um, you know, the intake of vegetable material ver- uh, versus animal protein. And he showed, he actually had some very graphic examples. He showed what looked like a wheelbarrow full of vegetable material. <laughs> And just a small handful of meat. <clears throat> and he said that um, the two were equal in terms of the calories produced. So, you, you know, especially a large animal uh, and most times predatory type animals, which we are, you know, in that category, uh, meat eaters. With large brains, it, it takes a lot to drive a large brain, a lot of calories bigger the brain the more calories are required to drive that brain so um he said that it's more economic for a predator to eat i mean eat meat to get you know that amount of energy it would take to drive the brain than it would be for all of that vegetation okay that's interesting because yeah they would just be stripping the heck out of uh any any kind of edible nutritional vegetation and gorillas do that they eat they eat huge amounts of of vegetation whereas most other primates you know incorporate meat into their diets well that was another question i had was uh, yeah gorillas are strictly vegetarian they, they don't i don't think they eat any meat now um, they are, but you look at their teeth and at one time in their history they very likely ate meat because the, the dentition is very similar to ours Okay. Oh, okay. And our teeth are, are designed to eat. We're, we're designed for omnivore or to be omnivores. We eat all sorts of things. Um, yeah. You know, the front of our teeth, the incisors are for actually biting through flesh. Uh, the canines were for gra- grabbing and tearing flesh. And then the molars are for grinding up things. So uh, just because they eat are totally vegetarians today doesn't mean they were always throughout their history. You know, Will, that's so interesting. That was actually going to be one of my questions was about the Sasquatch's teeth. And and doing some a little bit of uh, research before the show, they I, I came across something about um, like a, a chimp's or a gorilla's teeth. And they said that, yeah, it's 
it's very similar to ours, even though their their teeth is more, I guess, de- designed or equipped for the vegetation. But the reason why they have you know big bigger canines, if you will, than us, and and big teeth is is uh, as a means of defense, as a means of uh, intimidation for any any kind of predator. Well, you, and you know that's interesting because I, I remember my anthropology professors talking about that many years ago, because they simply didn't know. They were speculating, and and on the other hand, they would talk about things. You know, adaptations. You know, if an adaptation wasn't useful, then a species would simply, you know, the variations would uh, opt those things away. But you see these very prominently in these animals. Um, so a canine isn't going to be used just simply for display purposes. That's what's used for today. When we see the lip flip, that's a warning, so they don't actually engage in fighting. But doesn't mean that that's what the uh, uh, what it was designed for originally. Yeah, the original intent. Yeah, right, exactly. So hypothetically, what would what would happen? Do you think in in let's say the jungles of Africa, if a Sasquatch came across a mountain gorilla um would there be uh i guess uh um a battle a, a fight or would it be more of uh you know just kind of like a human just stay away from my area and- well there'd be displays to you know the warnings to keep away because they're very territorial primates are territorial um and it's just like the examples we hear about here when different groups encounter each other we get a lot of noise and things like that going on until uh, that dispute is settled, and it happens among other primate species the same way. Uh, so it would be the same thing if one encountered a group of gorillas. Or the gorillas would uh, stand their ground, they put on their display, and the Sasquatch would probably uh, back down and wander off. Okay. You know, that brings up another question with uh, non-primate predators. You know, I'm wondering what the encounter would be like with Sasquatch and say, for example, a pack of Canadian gray wolves, which those things are just enormous. You know, they're huge, 200 pounds. Now, one gray wolf and one Sasquatch, well, we know what the result would be there, but uh, eight or nine gray wolves and one or two Sasquatch, you know, I'm just wondering. Well, I suspect uh, the wolves wouldn't mess with the Sasquatch, probably because uh, they could lay waste to a group of wolves more than likely pretty quickly yeah well yeah and you know just as, <laughs> as soon as i asked the question i got to thinking well wolves you know they're part of the dog family and we know that for the most part dogs universally just avoid they'll do go out of their way to avoid these things or hide from them. i mean wolves don't mess with grizzlies in the wild you know for good reason yeah and, and it would be very similar with these things yeah yeah it's called self-preservation. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, well, we got a guy here who's got a question, and he says, Will, I was wondering, how do you avoid going out and using the shotgun method? Now, I'm assuming he's talking about uh, looking for these creatures. He goes, I was wondering if any of the four types interact with each other, and if so, what kind of encounter would that be? Typically, no, they steer clear of each other. Uh, and we've had witness see, witnesses see them more than one type, you know, nearly encounter each other. And and um, usually when the lesser of the two types, 
discover the other ones there, they quickly turn and, and leave the area. Oh, interesting. So that kind of gets back to Brian's question. Uh, you know, when you get a conflict or, or not a conflict, but an interaction, you know, when they, when they intrude on each other's space, now, go out of their way to avoid space, that. Now, they will. Now, when a group is in, a, in there, the, the ranges will overlap sometimes. Um, if you get a group with one range is in an area and it leaves, uh, you may get individuals from another group come into that area shortly afterwards. You know, we, we do know that happens occasionally. But as far as a direct confrontation, typically not. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yes, he's got a couple other really good questions. And by the way, uh, uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but I just want to compliment him on his questions. Um, he says that it's, it's been noted that Sasquatch are attracted to the sound of children and their voices. Um, what would they do in response to hearing children playing? Well, I'll tell you, and it may not sound good, but typically when you're talking about a predatory animal that we do know on occasion takes people, um, predators will go after the young and the old because they're the easiest ones to take. They're most vulnerable. So um, I interviewed a guy in the uh, involved in my first book when I was writing that, and uh, this had to do with the Puyallup Screamer incidents, which were just a few miles north of where I lived. And he was 10 or 11, he said at the time, him and a couple of buddies were out playing in the woods in that area uh, where these things were very active in. And he said one afternoon they were in this thicket and um, this thing took its, its hands and just parted the brush and was, you know, maybe 10 feet or so away from them. And, of course, scared the hell out of them. They, they all took off running. Um, you know, had they hung around any longer, who knows what would have happened because there were three of these things in that area at the time. Uh, so we don't know what the intention was, but, um, you know, it didn't pursue them, at least as far as they knew. Yeah, but it sounds like it's uh, definitely, they got dark purposes in but mind. It, but it definitely could have been attracted by the noise they were making. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point, though, that they're they're interested in the weak and the young and that sort of thing. And, they, and you know, those creatures were feeding pretty well in that area, so that may have been why they didn't do more, you know, with the boys. You know, the irony with that, though, too, I mean, obviously, the, these things are, are predators. They're, they're um, obviously going to go after the weak and everything. But the irony is that gorillas supposedly, um, well, I mean, because I know that Tom's a big fan of Michael Crichton. Well, well, if you've read the book Congo and you've seen the movie Congo, um, the, the gorillas are supposedly really reluctant to go after another group's young um, but obviously this is different than a gorilla. And, and it's not, I think in reality, that's not necessarily true. If it's, if it's a territorial dispute and maybe not with gorillas as yeah. much, but chimps certainly. Yeah. Yeah. But they'll go after the uh, opposition's young. Oh yeah. And el and elderly too. Yes. Wh whatever's basically available if they're having a conflict. Yeah. Interesting. Now, 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 here's another question, because um, we hear about them 
obviously deer seems to be their 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 food of choice but uh, obviously we we've heard of them attacking you know dogs uh cats other animals do they do that mainly as uh just because it's an opportunity or is that kind of because maybe their primary source uh deer are maybe less available at that time or do they just go after everything i think most of the time it's it's whatever is the easiest you know it's much easier to go grab somebody's dog than it is to go out and go through the hunt of a deer and maybe maybe or maybe not getting that animal where the dog is much easier especially if it's you know tied up or in a kennel or something like that uh-huh you know along the same lines um i'm curious because oftentimes or sometimes we hear stories where they seem to kill animals and not eat them you know they just kill them and then just leave them there um have you heard of this and what would be the reason for that if, yeah if I was just thinking that actually <laughs> sometimes they'll come in and kill something and sometimes horribly mutilate the animals almost as uh, some sort of uh, a message to the people there almost yeah almost very look what vindictive. i can do like like maybe they were felt slighted in some way these things have a very short fuse and you know maybe something completely inadvertently done by the people and it really ticks these things off and, and a lot of times they'll do those kinds of things yeah yeah i was thinking on, on that note about how maybe people that are stupid enough to gift these animals and then all of a sudden when there's no gift maybe they forget or they go out of town or something then you hear about stories of them you know d- destroying their property or yeah. things like that and i wouldn't yeah. even say as far as gifting uh, a lot of times people put food out for wild animals and if these things are the ones taking that food then it's not there for a time period it really ticks them off and, and then usually there's some form of uh, destruction that follows that some sort of behavior that's not good you know that's a good point because uh, believe it or not there <laughs> there was a time I think in the National Park Service history probably back in the late 40s early 50s when they encouraged people to uh, come visit the bears and feed them as unbelievable as that is uh, and if anybody from the National Park Service is listening and this is not true uh, let me know. <laughs> Send Will an email, would you? No. <laughs> um, well, and look, look what but, people used to do in Yellowstone, where they would commonly, you know, the bears come up to cars because they knew people would give them food. And then when they were yeah. told not to do that, the bears would rip car doors off and all sorts of things because they knew that was a source of food. Well, and you'd see and you'd hear, hear reports, and I think there's one or two videos out there where somebody would feed the bear and then when they ran out of the candy bars or whatever it was, they put their hands in the air and say, sorry, uh, you know, thinking, you know, the bear would understand, gosh, I've given you everything I got. I don't have any more. That's a sign and of the bears. Oh, it is. Oh, okay. And the bear, it's almost as if it'd go, well, you're here. Yeah. See, when, <laughs> when they tell you to get big by putting your arms out and doing those kind of things, that's, that's a stance of aggression. Oh, and, and that's okay. the thing, like when we see other animals doing it, typically primates, when you make yourself look bigger and louder, that's that's telling the other one you better back off. Yeah. Hmm. But when you quit feeding the bears, 
they don't they don't just go away. No, they're not happy now, about that. <laughs> they're not happy about that. And and the, and the point that I was kind of thinking of was the bears. I think probably compared to a Sasquatch, have a much short term memory. They're they're more in the moment, whereas Sasquatch, the Bigfoots, are uh, they can do things premeditated. You know, right. they got that short fuse. They're a primate. But, they're probably. And I hate using the term related. They're in the same family grouping that we are. They're not not related necessarily. They're in the same family grouping. So they're going to have a bigger brain. They're going to be able to remember better. Mm-hmm. And they'll act on that. And they'll act on that. Now, Will, uh, you, you talk about them being uh, in the same kind of family as us. But uh, with regards to, uh, you know, if you look at monkeys, um, how many, if any, Reports have you gotten of a Sasquatch with with tails like monkeys have? None. 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 Yeah, they're they're like humans. They don't have tails. Okay. Now whether Just they, curious whether they did in their remote past is a different story. You know, whatever they were related to may have, but like us, it it, uh, it vanished over time. Okay. Okay. You know that kind of brings up an interesting point, though. Um, they're the only known primate that walks bipedally other than us. Is that right? I don't think I – and mean, once in a while you'll see a gorilla, but that's not their their default. That's not their natural right. mode of when, – when, when you look at primates, um, there's basically kind of three groupings. There's one that are, they're mostly quadrupeds. Um, they can occasionally get up and, and walk on two feet, but it's not very far. Uh, like baboons and some of the other smaller monkeys. Then there's the mm-hmm. intermediate stage. We're talking about gorillas, chimps, orangutans, um, that are what they call knuckle walkers. In other words, their their hip and, and backbone is designed for, they're sort of in between. And, and you can tell by the skull where the opening for the uh, um, the spinal column goes into the brain. When you look at quadrupeds, mm-hmm. it's directly underneath the skull. Uh, when you and well, let me go back to that, and it's uh, let me reverse that. And quadrupeds, it's in the very back of the skull. When you look at a true biped like we are, ours is directly underneath. And the ones that are in the intermediary stage are sort of halfway between. So when you see that hole on, on a gorilla skull or a chimp uh, or an orangutan, they're in that in, in between stage, which means they're kind of halfway between quadruped and biped. You know that's fascinating because that there's a direct correlation between the location of that and what their mode of locomotion is. Correct. Huh. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, along those same lines, and I apologize. I'm looking through the all the questions we got. So whoever asked this question had a great question. My apologies. I I don't have it in front of me, so I can't give you credit for it uh, with your first name. But somebody wrote in and wanted to know. They've heard about, you know, obviously they want their bipedal, their most common way of walking. And then oftentimes they're seen walking around on all fours, you know, with their on their knuckles. But he wanted to know if there's any um, any instances that we you know of where they actually crawl on their bellies. Yeah, we've had a few reports of that. Okay. And it, you would think that that would 
kind of makes sense. If if it was advantageous for some reason, if they're stealthily or they're trying to avoid detection or something. Yeah, I think a lot of times, especially younger ones, because when you look at other young in the wild, um, they're usually close to the ground. They have defense mechanisms that keep them from being seen. Um, so the Sasquatch, I'm sure, is going to be the same way. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and in terms of that, it made me think about the Sasquatch being seen walking on all fours. That's probably a leftover behavior from a previous stage of development. Um, you know, some of them, especially the ones that we see primarily in the South that, that have the large canines that are often seen on all fours. Um, and, and it kind of almost makes me wonder if maybe where that, that opening on the skull, as we talked about, Maybe to, if it isn't directly underneath yet, maybe it's just offset a little bit. It could be something very interesting to find out if we had had a specimen, you know, a skull to see. That where maybe they might account for the slumped shoulders oftentimes when you see, see them moving around uh, like the Patterson Sasquatch. It is walking upright, but, you know, the shoulders are slumped. It's, its posture is a little bit different than a human's. Yeah, that is interesting. And I'd also think it'd be interesting to get a specimen of the one that is, um, I can't remember what type it was, but it has more of a baboon. It's got a very the type pronounced threes. snout. Mm-hmm. Type threes, yeah. Are they uh, are they reported to be more bipedal or are they more, or are they quadruped as well? That's a good question. We don't have a ton of reports on that type, but um, yeah, that would be interesting. And, I, and I'm sure that development is probably some previous uh, stage of development with these things. Maybe they, because animal species will sometimes over time uh, change their form, maybe go back to a previous stage. Oh, really? So there's some, maybe some unused or recessant DNA, for lack of a better word, yeah, DNA information that's, getting called up again sure for whatever okay. reason maybe that's been activated in this particular group in this particular region mm-hmm. okay well that's interesting hey, hey will I'm, I'm just curious uh, because i know that we've gotten reports of uh of them being white in color and i'm mm-hmm. just curious as to when, when the first i mean because obviously when you first saw them they were i mean you saw the, the kind of the reddish brown ones or any of you heard of, heard of the brown ones Very but i'm just dark, curious yeah. as to yeah when was the first time you, that you heard a report of them of like a white one and you said oh my gosh i never knew that this this existed and and how often do you get a report of uh a white one not very often i think the first time i knew about it was in one of john green's books uh and then the second encounter i had was that one was it wasn't white but it was gray, gray. so Right. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it, it maybe it was on its way to turning white. I don't know, but it was not colored like the first two I saw. Uh-huh. But it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. You know, I I got a question on that, um, not on the color, but on your first encounter where you, where you saw one, and then if I recall correctly, you said one of them had walked next to you to it stand walked, it walked side by me. side to the other. It walked around me. Yeah. And was it within arm's reach of you, or a little bit farther? It was probably, I don't know, eight, ten feet. Just guessing. It was, it was a little bit away, but it wasn't real far. Still, way too close for comfort. Way too close. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't comfortable to be, to begin with with the one standing in front of me. 
And then when the second <laughs> one come around, I was very unhappy. <laughs> you didn't want to stick around for tea? I got the hell out of there. <laughs> I, my favorite quote is, you did what the dog did. <laughs> I did what the dog did. The dog was smarter than me, Matt, in that case. <laughs> I followed the dog's example. <laughs> So you're looking, I just want to go back to, you're looking at these things, you haven't heard of Bigfoot, and you've got to be going, what? Well, I, I did know about him at that time, because we found the footprints two years before. Oh, okay. Oh, I okay. Sure, All I right. Sure didn't expect to run into one. Yeah, and probably didn't want to. <laughs> well, it wasn't my plan, no. <laughs> I'd have brought a bigger gun if I had. <laughs> oh, man. And just... I had a 22. Was, I thought, you know, skunk, raccoon, something, you know. Yeah. Hey, Will, this is, uh, I know that you, I mean, it's been a long time since I, since I read the book, but, um, but I guess this is sort of review. When you guys first saw the railroad tracks and then you went to your friend's house and his dad kind of explained mm -hmm. what, what it was, um, I'm just curious, did, did you ever keep in touch with that guy's dad? Um, I mean, did he ever, did he ever know about your encounter? Um, well, John and I, you know, we had been friends ever since, you know, we were young, probably seventh grade, I think is when he met John. So I used to go to his house all the time. And, uh, Did he have nah, we never really talked about it after. I mean, you know, it, it's like most places, you know, when something happens, everybody just sorts of clams up about it after that. We just uh -huh. didn't talk about it. Now, I'm sure he knew we were out looking, but he never asked. Okay. <laughs> you know, the other thing that I, because I read that, I've read that book three times at least, and portions of it even more. And besides the part where you ran into those two creatures, yeah, I forgot you did see the footprints, uh, you know, with the uh, bloody entrails or whatever they were on the mm -hmm. train tracks. The part that I thought was absolutely even freakier was the Clark Ranch camping out there that was insane. and these things are yeah they're stomping around this lake that you hear the frogs croaking then they stop croaking that was your kind of your miner's canary and okay. then uh, milo sees the one <laughs> I, I don't i don't think all of us were ever so scared in our lives as that night i mean yeah. there, was, there was no way out of there because they were surrounding you right you we were surrounded and we were stuck there <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. <clears throat> well, <laughs> and uh, you is that the one you and I t spoke one time? You said that they threw something into your camp, and you guys ran up the hill after them, and oh, you no, looked that was, down. That was a different trip. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> in, in fact, I, you know, John, uh, he remembered things about that trip that I had forgotten. Uh, we were all standing around, and it was right before that happened. And, you know, we weren't really expecting to see anything on that trip. We we were out looking. We were teenagers, you know. And there, right. were, there were 10 of us in the camp, and his brother, younger brother, Jeff, was with us. And, and apparently he got bored, so he threw a rock out into the brush. And it was shortly after that, and they didn't say anything. Nobody knew he did it except John. And he, he whispered to John, he says, you think I should tell the guys? And, and John's like, no, be quiet. <laughs> You'll get in big trouble. So moments after that, this long branch, it was probably five or six feet long, like a spear, come flying horizontally 
out of the out of the tree line at us. Almost hit one of the guys. I mean, that was and then <laughs> his brother Jeff was freaked out by that because he didn't expect to get a response. <laughs> so you guys, I love this part. You went after you go. You're, we went you're charging into harm's way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, we get up on the hill, and, and you could see something, you know, it looked like two of them moving around the fire in our camp. And then, you know, we we, uh, we went running back, and there was nothing down there. But uh, that morning, John reminded me, we went back up to where we ran up the hill to, and there was an old uh, logging road we didn't know was up there, and there was footprints up there. Oh, interesting. And in those days, I mean, I think I had a camera, one of those little Instamatic ones you know we almost never had any money to buy film so i didn't i didn't take it with me none of us had cameras yeah yeah well it's that old logging road thing that i find interesting because that was uh it took me a while to go back and find that first encounter you know when i called you and brian and troy on that phone call and it was interesting to go back and talk to your old buddies and they they had pieces that you forget over time you know right yeah Um, well, the area that I, I went back, I, I finally f- was 99% sure that was the same area. And right next to where I'd heard that sound was an old, old, I guess it'd be a logging road, it, you know, access to a unit. Um, it was so rutted and so steep. I couldn't imagine getting anything down there and getting back out, but, mm-hmm. uh, it'd be a perfect pathway for oh, these yeah. creatures. And I'm sure other animals too. Sure to, that, yeah. They're going to use a path of least resistance. All wildlife will. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, yeah, no, I just, uh, I just that Clark Ranch. I read that and I was like, you know, if I was in that situation, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we were we were far enough out where we there was, and I, you know, every time we went, I swear we we brought one flashlight among the group of us, and it was always yeah. one with batteries that weren't worth anything. And I mean, you know, you have to remember, folks. You know, we're talking back in the 70s, and it was things we didn't really focus on that much. Um, you know, things like flashlights were an afterthought. It was probably one of the other guys that brought it, brought the flashlight and, you know, didn't think to put new batteries in it. And, you know, we just, we didn't think about that kind of stuff. Same with cameras, same with lots of stuff. You know, we thought more about our stomachs and bringing what kind of food we were going to bring with us <laughs> than anything. Right. Um, well, so, yeah. So we got out there and we and- were stuck. Well, the technology of flashlights back in the 70s, I remember. Wasn't that good. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, my, my granddad had a had one of those flashlights. And uh, I just remember, you know, by today's standards, it was nothing. It oh, was no. just worthless. And, and like I said, you know, most of us didn't have a bunch of money to do things. Not, it, people today are very different than what we were back then. And, and we didn't take stock into having a lot of things. And a lot of what was there was our parents, and it may or may not have been in good condition <laughs> if they would let us right. take it in the first place. So uh, we sort of had to had to wing it in most cases. Yeah. Now, the, and I think the that... Clark, that oh, go ahead, Brian. The, the Clark Ranch, that's where uh, one of you had uh, got grabbed under, under the tent, right? Right, one of the guys got grabbed. <laughs> That was my fa- that was one of my favorite part and 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 then Milo looks over there and I guess that was his first camping trip. 
Keebuck, you know, and I kind of, I guess that was his first trip. I didn't remember that it was, but it may have been. He about crapped himself. <laughs> you know, all of us get together, we laugh like heck about a lot of these stories. And, and the stuff I didn't write about, the stuff I left out, you know, all the clowning around and stuff. But, which, you well, know, and we, he had, we always, he had remember. mentioned, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just said he had, he had mentioned that he thought he was like, does this happen all the time? <laughs> yeah, does this happen every time you go camping? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were there were some crazy trips. I mean, most of the time, you know, you go out and you don't find or, or hear anything. Um, I can remember us going out and there was, we had one friend who was, uh, he was always screwing with everybody, always messing around. And Mr. Jokester, you know, and... Uh, like, for instance, this one trip, I remember me and somebody else snuck off from the rest of the group. There was a large group of us, and it was out in this open field with a lot of, uh, oh, what do they call them? I can't think of the type of bush that grows at them, but they get kind of big near uh, Fort Lewis. And Not roadies. No, no, no. It was, it's, oh. it, but, but they grow like that. And uh, for some reason, our presence wasn't missed. So we ended up sneaking on the group and scaring the hell out of everybody. But and then one of the guys would sit around it, and I swear this guy could produce gas whenever he wanted to, and uh, you know was grossing everybody out, and you know typical teenage boy stuff. Yeah. Um, and and where when we went to the Mount St. Helens trip was one of our, our favorite discussions because we all you know those of us who were there still laugh a lot about it. Um, our our buddy Scott, he was very prim and proper sort of guy you know wasn't into all the horseplay like the rest of us were and i guess he'd just gotten fed up with this other friend of our brian's nonsense he was the one you know the the gas producer and all the stuff mm -hmm. he would say and do so the two college students who called me they gave me the location of where the cabin was that the miners had in 1924 when they were attacked uh, they had found the location and when we went there, this was in, you know, November of 76. And I remember just, you know, the silly things. Um, I cooked I cooked the first night's meal, and there were six of us up there, and, and I sat down on the only boulder that was nearby, the only decent place to sit. So I figured I cooked, so I'm taking the good seat. Of course, we, <laughs> we were so far up in there, you know, we weren't going to pack chairs and stuff up there. Um so these guys, these college students, had cut some poles, and they tied them with twine between some of the standing trees. And I'm sure it was to sit on like we used them for. So Scott comes over behind me, and he sits down next to me on one of these poles that was tied to the tree. And he, he kind of looks over at me and looks where he's sitting, and he gets up and he walks away. I thought, oh, maybe he forgot something. So the, this guy Brian comes over, and he sits in the same spot. And just moments later... We hear this thwack, and Brian's feet go flying up in the air. The food went flying up in the air, and here's Scott standing behind him with the hatchet and this big grin on his face. <laughs> and, and Milo looks, we're all sitting there stunned that Scott would actually do something like this. And Milo goes, Scott, you're finally one of us. <laughs> what did you do? Chop, chop one of the ropes? Or? <laughs> he chopped the twine, and Brian went over food all over him. <laughs> he, he had it coming to him. 
<laughs> but you know, there there was stuff like that that went on. You know, I'm sure a lot of these activities are what drew the Sasquatches to us in places like the Clark Ranch. But uh, well, you know, one of the questions is. Uh, the the miners that was uh, Fred Beck or Fred Beckham or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that thing still around or did it get obliterated? Actually, not much of that side of the mountain was destroyed. Of course, there was no cabin there. The cabin burnt down in the sixties, but um, the location is there. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's that'd right, be a fun place to find. It's right at the head of Ape Canyon. That's not very hard to find. I, I've seen things online where people say the cabin was lost and all this stuff. I mean. Good Lord, just find right. Ape Canyon on the map and find the head of it. It's right at the top of the Plains of Abraham at the head of Ape Canyon, just on the north side. Okay, okay. Very simple place well, to find. And, and my understanding from what I've read is that Ape Canyon was named for these creatures. Yes. I mean, it what was, else It was after be? that incident. Oh, so it was because of the incident. Because then. of the incident, yes. Okay. And you know, you got to think about it. put yourself in the mind of these guys. What in the heck am I seeing? Now, you have you to know? remember on occasion when they would follow the Lewis River to get up to that location, they'd come in from the south. Um, and I don't know, we didn't go that way, but there must have been an easier route to get there than the way we came. Uh, in those days, it was Windy Pass that you had to climb up to and then go along the uh, eastern side of the Plains of Abraham. But it's it's probably easier to come in from the south. It's more gradual. Um, but they would find footprints along the Lewis River. So they, they, oh, knew, really? there, they knew there was something in the area. Mm-hmm. See, that's the stuff that's interesting is the historical evidence. And I've, I've often wondered, I don't think there's any reports of it, but I've often wondered if uh, Lewis and Clark ever either heard or stumbled into anything. You know, somebody, their told me, somebody told me in one of their journals there was something, but I haven't had a chance to go back and research that. Well, you know, because remember they they kind of, weren't they the ones that got stranded and they they were waiting uh, for a boat or a ship to, you know, that they, they could get picked up by and it never happened? Uh, I can't remember offhand. I, I haven't read their that account for a long time, but. Yeah. But they, of course, they you know met with a number of native tribes along the way, and you know it'd be interesting to find out what maybe they were told or did experience along that route, especially when they sure. got to the northwest. Yeah, because <clears throat> I'm sure I'm sure there was probably not a hardly a native tribe that didn't know about these things. Oh, they all knew. Yeah. Well, do we have any more questions, fellows? Or um, I, I think, think that's it. Today. yeah i think good for today yeah and by the way real quick i want to thank the audience for the number of questions you guys are sending more and more and uh, they're great they're absolutely excellent questions absolutely so yeah if you um if you want to if you have a question send it to questions plural questions at creekdevil.com um do include your first and last name and as you've noticed we don't include that information on the air even if you ask us to we keep your information confidential but also uh very important give us the inf- uh the location where you are so that we can keep you apprised of any activity in your area absolutely mm-hmm. brian you have any thoughts 
Uh, no, I mean, I just echo what Tom just said. Uh, I mean, thanks for all the, the great questions, and uh, we'll be sure to uh, ask them here on the show. Okay. All right, fellas, well, listen, we'll wrap up here. Everybody stay tuned. You're going to find uh, Jim's narration a very interesting one for this episode, so stay tuned for that. This written story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is narrated by Jim Sower. The following was written by Dr. H. A. Miller, who died in 2005. Born in New England, December 12, 1909. I was the first and only child of Christiana and Arthur Miller. My mother died in childbirth and I was subsequently raised by my father until remarried to a Frenchwoman when I was twelve or thirteen years of age. Soon after their marriage, she bore a baby girl. I finished my high school education while living with my father, stepmother, and half-sister. I remained in New England for my undergraduate work. I thoroughly enjoyed the outdoors, the ocean, and forestry. My undergraduate studies focused on forestry and land management. While in my junior and senior year, I was employed by the federal government. I worked at Lockwood Farm, part of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I learned about hybridization and agriculture and enjoyed the hard outdoor work in the cornfields. I began to find great interest in the scientific workings happening with corn seed at the time. I completed an additional year in forestry science and graduated in 1930 with an A.B. from Yale University and an M.F. Mastery of Science in Forestry in 1931. I labored at Lockwood Farm for a few years and gained great interest in science and medicine. By this time, I did hope to attend medical school and become a physician. I expeditiously applied for medical school and was accepted to Harvard and began my medical training in 1938. Graduating from Harvard Medical School in the early 1940s, and I completed residency and fellowship at Harvard and began a very specialized career at the time in orthopedic forensic surgery, Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, in Boston. Because of my previous work with the USDA, I was quickly employed by the federal government. My early years as a physician related mostly to providing medical support to various employee types, firefighters, etc., within the USDA-FS. I also became the forensic expert and anatomist for the USDA and was called to examine most major accidental deaths of USDA-FS servicemen. Due to my interest in genetics and early experiences in agricultural hybridization, I was assigned to scientific teams which investigated the physical nature of genetics. Our early experiments determined that DNA is the component of the chromosomes where genetics should be studied. This, along with the efforts of several other scientists, led to the discovery of the double helix structure in the early 1950s. 
It was at this time that several of our team members were called to Bandera County, Texas, where the forestry scientists, biologists assigned to Edwards Plateau, reported the dead bodies of a strange type of human. The first reports I received were speculating that they were feral humans from the local Comanche Indian tribes. The bodies were supposedly found in or around one of the massive caves within the Edwards Plateau area. When I arrived in Texas, I was surprised to find three bodies, one adult female and two female juveniles. I examined them, as I typically would any human subject, but to my dismay, one of the creatures still seemed to be alive. I became quite upset with the local scientists, but they reassured me that they confirmed all three were deceased. After further investigation, I found that these creatures were not human. They, in fact, had a remarkable rapid reparative process, hence the reason one of the creatures seemed dead, but in fact was regenerating to some degree. Unfortunately, the restorative abilities of the creature were not enough to keep it alive. They were massive in size and distinctly a new primate species unknown to science at the time. I spent years studying these creatures, which are scientifically known as Cibidetelidae, confirming that they were most certainly not human. They were definitely of primate origin, but with traits seen in various species of primate, most of which were New World monkey. Cibidetelidae found in the San Antonio, Texas area very much howl like a howler monkey, quite frightening to hear at night. At one point early in my analysis, I found a great deal of similarity between these Bigfoot creatures and the howler monkey. That was until 1962. In late 1962, early 63, I was notified of a large, human-like creature by the Reading Forest Service folks in California. I arranged for transport of the body to my primary location in Colorado. It was reported to me that the body was found under a large tree that had been violently struck by lightning and blown to the ground, apparently killing this large creature. During my investigation, I found the animal to be very similar to those that I had studied in Bandera County area of Texas, with some marked differences. This northern version of Cibidetelidae seemed to have the same New World monkey attributes that I noted in the Texas animals, known today as Cibidetelidae texicanus, or C. texicanus. However, there were unique traits found in the Pacific Northwest animal, known today as Cibidetelidae nerteros pacificus, or C. nerteros pacificus, including thumbs that are not entirely opposable as we see in modern humans. Senior Teros Pacificus entire hand was truly designated for grip, including proximal pads, making the hand somewhat hooked-like, having flattened nails resulting in my theory that these northern creatures developed an evolutionary arboreal nature, while the Texas subfamily developed a troglocene nature. The Pacific Northwest, PNW, creature, found in 1962-63, also had scent glands on her forearms. This is more evidence that C. nerteros pacificus is arboreal to some extent, leaving scent marks up and down the tree while climbing. Not only was this creature smashed by the large tree, 
but she was also badly burned with areas of lightning prints on exposed skin. I notated in my medical examination report of the body that it seemed as though lightning struck the animal passing through the body and into the tree, subsequently weakening the tree and causing it to fall to the ground. It did seem as though the animal had fallen to the ground first, with the tree falling on top of her afterward, but the evidence as to whether the animal fell first or with the tree is inconclusive. However, it is clear lightning struck the tree at a decent height of over twenty feet. Therefore, this animal must have been clinging to the tree at the time of the lightning strike. More evidence of the arboreal nature of C. nerteros pacificus. C. nerteros pacificus also has additional medial padding on the feet, which it would use to climb trees by clinging to the trees with its hands and support its weight. Both the C. nerteros pacificus and C. texacanus have oversized lower jaws. Both the C. nerteros pacificus and C. texacanus have oversized lower jaws, including massive sternocleidmastoid musculature. This must have been due to their rugged diet, and moreover, their need to crush bones. Their lower dentum at first looked as a second row of molars, but after years of research and examining the dead bodies of these animals, I have found that the lower molars are simply oversized and fused, resulting in massive bone-crushing tools. Due to their jaw size and bone-crushing dentum, it is also clear that all subfamily of this creature are omnivorous, predaceous, and opportunistic. We did find that the female killed during the Columbus Day storm was pregnant with monozygotic embryos. All female Cibidatellidae bodies I have investigated throughout my career that have been pregnant have monozygotic embryos. This again incorporating additional evidence of a new world monkey relationship. Due to my investigation of the 1950s bodies in Texas, the 1960s Pacific Northwest Columbus Day storm body, I submitted to the Department of Agriculture that this is a new Platyrrhini species and that a new family under the PARV order should be created. Fellow scientists of mine disagreed, given the fact that the creatures were examined in both cases were obviously bipedal and catarini in terms of their nostrils, facing downward, old-world monkeys. However, the juveniles that we have examined are much more platyrini in terms of nostril breadth and position. I won the debate in the end due to the fact that no evidence thus far demonstrates that these creatures crossed over from the old world, but are simply new world monkeys adapting to their various staged areas within North and South America. I have since retired, and I know of some new University of Utah and Idaho-based scientists who understand the genetics a bit better. Their findings are only supporting my original theorems, or at least I am told. These molecular biologists will soon understand the similarities with humans once the Human Genome Project is completed. As a result, I still refer to the Sasquatch species as Cibidatellidae with the following subfamilies. Cibidatellidae artos, Cibidatellidae nerteros pacificus, Cibidatellidae somphos, Cibidatellidae americanus, Cibidatellidae texacanus, and Cibidatellidae amazonia. 
Any of these species found outside the New World must have originated from and migrated out of the New World. All of my experience with this primate has been post-mortem, save a few unique experiences in the wild. To my knowledge, a live specimen has never been captured except for once in Northern Research Station in California. However, the animal did not survive in captivity and died after only several days. I, of course, examined the body. There were many rumors that this captured Sasquatch was somehow magical and could shapeshift, and that is why it couldn't be found. The truth is, the folks at Northern Research Station were very devastated and embarrassed that this live specimen died so quickly after being in captivity. So no, they are not magical. They are highly intelligent primates. Having one die in captivity is a very difficult thing to watch due to the human nature and feeling about the species. In reality, captivity will never be realistic for Subiditellidae because of their size and complex brains. Similar to captive white sharks, the species cannot thrive in captivity and quickly die as a protective mechanism. I've spent a great deal of my career as an expert for the federal government concerning Subiditellidae and throughout the world, including the bodies recovered in the 1980s due to Mount St. Helens' eruption. We made many recommendations to protect the species, but the DOI has constant concern regarding the impact of such a decision due to the vast number of areas this species inhabits. Such a decision would have potential negative impacts on the natural resource industry. The USFS is now working more toward creating protective wildlife refuges for Cibiditellidae. Others on the team focused on molecular genetics. The USFS and the DOI is recognizing now that the natural resource industry is not the economic center as it once was. So a final decision has been made to finalize the Class I identification of the species. There is a 20-year plan to incorporate all wildlife protection areas throughout many areas of the United States to ensure federal land protection for Cibiditellidae, starting with California, Colorado, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. I was upset by this decision because the first location the species was identified scientifically was Texas. I petitioned, and as a result, the Government Canyon State Natural Area will be protected, opened to the public, and expanded in Bexar County, Texas. The long-term plan will be to open each of these designated natural areas to the public. Once all of the designated Cibiditellidae natural areas are open to the public, the Department of Interior will announce the species as an endangered New World primate. I am not sure if this will happen, and the Government Canyon State Natural Area will not be open to the public until 2005, and then expanded later in 2009, and then again in 2012. This will all be happening long after I'm dead, I'm afraid. I am currently still living in Colorado, and I have attempted to journal my experience with the discovery of this new massive primate. The species is amazing, powerful, and deadly if angered. Like any animal, it will protect itself, its food source, and its young at all cost. Artiodactyla, or hooved animals, 
are Zubatitelide's primary food source. It is imperative that the federal government continue to designate natural areas. Otherwise, a scarce food resource available to Zubatitelide will result in more opportunistic feeding behavior and closer interaction between humans and Zubatitelide. These creatures and human beings simply do not coexist. This was written by H. A. Miller, M.D., Ph.D. He was influenced by the writings of anatomist Dr. Thomas Dwight, among which includes Frozen Sections of a Child, 1872, Clinical Atlas of Variations of the Bones of the Hands and Feet, 1907, and Thoughts of a Catholic Anatomist, 1911. This concludes the reading of Dr. H. A. Miller. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then... Keep your eyes open out there.